Omega Tau. Science and Engineering in your headphones. You see here on the wall, uh, Mercury, Mercury's mysteries. The first question should be, uh, why do we worry about Mercury, Mercury's mysteries? Don't you have bigger problems to solve? Are there bigger questions? Um, let's start with the future of our Earth. Where does life come from? Uh, is there life out there? Um, and indeed, these are big questions, but we cannot expect to find an answer to the questions if we don't understand our home, our planet, and our solar system. And to understand our solar system, we fly, if I say we fly, I mean the space agencies around the globe. We're flying landers to asteroids to comets. We are going to all of the planets and we try to improve and enlarge our knowledge on the solar system. And this works pretty well. So we're flying a lot of these missions and uh, we understand, uh, we improve our knowledge. We're building models, we put the models into computers and we run them thousands of times. And the output we compare with our reality, with the data we have. And this works reasonably fine, and we are approaching this, but there is an exception, and this is Mercury. On Mercury, we see a lot of data and a lot of phenomena which we cannot explain, which don't fit to the models we are running. For a very long time, we have thought, okay, maybe Mercury is coming from somewhere else, and then uh, we still kind of believe Maybe there was a catastrophic event around Mercury, right? A, a, a giant asteroid impact which made Mercury to look what it looks now. More and more we get to the impression it might not be Mercury, which is mysterious. It might be the gap in our knowledge of the solar system, which we have to work on. Nevertheless, it goes together to resolve the mysteries of Mercury. And, uh, and also to understand better our solar system. We will give you in a few minutes uh, a few examples of this go in the depth of, of a few. Before I come, before I come to this, um, I would like to go to the, uh, what we need to achieve our goals. So the mysteries are from the interior to the surface, to the exosphere, to the magnetosphere. And to analyze all of this is very widespread. And we need to achieve our goals a huge laboratory. And indeed, in, in, a, in a, an hour or so, in a few minutes, we will launch a tremendously large laboratory, which is Betty Colombo. Betty Colombo is made of two scientific satellites and a transfer module. It's an international cooperation between our Japanese colleagues uh, and the space agency JAXA, who has provided the Mercury magnetospheric model, which you see here. Then we have a contribution from ESA, the, magnet, the Mercury Planetary Orbiter, MPO, and we have the transfer module, which we call MTM. So all three together uh, will provide an excellent laboratory we have a huge amount of instruments, 11 on the MPO, we have 5 on the MMO. They are excellent instrumentation which are complementing each other 
And with all of these instruments together, we will be able to, um, to analyze and hopefully get shed a bit of light into the mysteries. So if I might still come to the, quickly to the challenges. So it's not so easy first to go to the direction of the sun. And when you are there, it's not so easy uh, to orbit uh, around Mercury. To achieve this, the technology is extremely complicated uh, to achieve. Typically on the MISA spacecraft, we have to develop 30% of the technology we have to develop from scratch, which is also normally very difficult. On BepiColombo, we have to go up to three quarters of the technology is developed for BepiColombo only. And I want to give you one little example. I have not mentioned that if you are at the Mercury orbit, the temperature goes up to 450 degrees Celsius. On the other side, if you look into the dark sky, you have minus 100. So the temperature difference is between 4 and 500 degrees. So to protect ourselves, we put, we call this an MLI, a multi-insulation layer. We put this around the whole spacecraft, except one side, which is our radiator side, to ensure that the temperature cannot enter. This kind of tissue here is made of 27 different layers, and each individual layer is explicitly designed and built and tested for Betty Colombo. The two outer layers here, I don't have, uh, I'm missing one hand. So the, the, the two outer layers here, no, it's okay. the two outer layers here are made from ceramic. Then we have two layers of titanium. And then we have all the other layers which are a mixture, I don't know the details of carbon and other metals and so on. And with this one, uh, we hold off 450 degrees Celsius. And not even this, that in the spacecraft, you might say, okay, it's maybe not so warm. No, it's the opposite. We have heaters in the spacecraft to ensure that the instruments are at the right temperature. So this works pretty well. This is one of the examples. And uh, this is stopping my introduction. This was Joe Zender. He's the deputy mission scientist for the Bepi Colombo mission to Mercury. And this is, of course, Marcus speaking. Uh, welcome to this new episode of Omega Tau. This one is a little bit different. It's a collection of different interviews around Baby Colombo. I was taking part in the press event at ESOC in Darmstadt the day before OT10. So Omega Tau 10, the birthday party was on Saturday evening and on Saturday morning, 3 a.m. was the Baby Colombo launch. And I recorded two interviews with um, scientists and the flight dynamics uh, flight dynamics guy, Pablo Munoz, um, the day before. So we have two long interviews and then we have a lot of sound bites and impressions from the launch. Now, I wasn't in the control room, right? I was in the press briefing room and I was hoping to record the communications loop from the control room, but that loop only had a very few kind of public announcements and not the actual like conversations um, of the controllers. So that wasn't extremely useful. So this episode isn't 
maybe quite as detailed as you perhaps like it or would have expected, but I have an idea for a future episode, which I'm going to discuss with Isa uh, in the in the near future. Um, all right, so um, this will go as follows. I will first have the interview with Pablo Munoz about flight dynamics. Then you'll hear again from Joe Zender and three of his scientist colleagues about the scientific objectives of the mission. And then you'll hear um, various aspects of the press briefing and a few short interviews with Paolo Ferri, the head of uh, mission operations at ESOC, and a few other people. Um, I should probably give you a brief uh, review of Omega Tau 10, but I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do this in the next German episode together with Nora. Suffice to say, it was a great party. It was a lot of fun. Uh, you missed out. <laughs> All right. So let's get started with Pablo. Okay, so good morning, Marcos, and everybody listening. So my name is Pablo Munoz. I am a flight dynamics engineer and mission analyst for um, for the Bepi Colombo mission. And also I was doing flight dynamics for many interplanetary missions in, in ESA. Mm -hmm. I come from Spain and I've been living for the last eight years here in Darmstadt working for, for ESOC. In terms of weather, this must be a step uh, down, right? It is a step down, but for example, <laughs> this year has been yeah. spectacular. So yeah. it's, it's good. It's Don't like get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not normal. <laughs> okay, so, so what is mission analysis, flight dynamics, like 10,000 foot overview? Mm -hmm. So, okay, mission analysis takes care of studying all the possible possible trajectories for a certain mission, trying to achieve the, the goals, finding the, the trajectory that would fit best within the, the budget of mass, of uh, duration of a mission, and the objective, scientific objectives, of course, this drives a lot the, the, the selection of the, of the orbit. Yeah. And uh, it implies a lot of trading off and providing uh, feedback to to the to the engineers designing the spacecraft, designing mm -hmm. the ground segment to mm -hmm. to give all the relevant data for for them, and iterating, iterating and uh, redoing uh, analyze, analysis. And uh, so how this, long does this process roughly take? Roughly, okay. <laughs> for example, now I'm starting for a mission, working for a mission from the beginning. And it would be launched in 2032, so we would be talking about 14 years. Oh. Interplanetary missions job then? No, not really. Okay. You are doing other missions, maybe once close to operations, okay. once close. Okay. This is because okay, they pass first the study phase, in which then they have to be selected as a as a proper mission by the member states of ESA yeah. that they want to fund it, they want to to do it, and then okay, it's still the developments take time because this yeah, this, sure. this this missions are each one is unique so then they have to be designed uh, everything is ad hoc for these uh, objectives and the trajectory planning if you will or design is an ongoing activity because as you said you have to trade off basically with everybody else correct correct okay. yeah so let's we'll go back to that in detail uh, later but so what is the basic trajectory of baby colombo so it's going to be launched from Earth, obviously. Yes. And then so lower orbit, orbit initially. Uh, no, no, it is launching escape trajectory. So, okay. so the rocket already directly. Puts, yeah, puts the spacecraft with uh, velocity at infinity. So this is what we use as escape velocity of about three and a half kilometers per second. Mm -hmm. And um, the resulting orbit around the Sun is mainly very similar to the to the orbit of the Earth and uh, with the same orbital period roughly. And this makes that after one and a half revolutions, so after one and a half years, we come back to the Earth. We do a swim by. Around Earth. Yeah, around cool. the Earth. This is a um, gravitational uh, assist maneuver, yep. as to call. 
uh, in which we get a kick from the Earth, and then we can dip inside into, into the solar system. Then we meet Venus. We do swim by at Venus, a couple of them. Then we go even deeper in the solar system, so we go to Mercury, and then we have six uh, planetary swimbys of Mercury while we are trying to align our orbit to the one of Mercury before before it starts. So if you will, you use Mercury for breaking down to make the orbit more or less circular around Mercury, Mercury which is where you want to go in the first place. Correct. That's okay. correct. A circular Mercury is the, has the most eccentric orbit of, uh, okay. of all the planets, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> still is quite an ellipse. Yeah. But yes, this is this is absolutely correct. And thanks to that eccentricity, we meet Mercury in different points in the orbit, and ah. this is what indeed helps to to achieve the the orbit. If it would be a circular orbit, really making swimbys of the target planet doesn't really help. But mm -hmm. here, uh, Mercury helps mm -hmm. helps a lot. Okay, and um, so. In terms of the, the key events, how, how long will it take to get to Mercury? So in total it's seven years. Seven years? Yes. And so what are the, the key events where, you know, something's going on in mission control yes. beyond monitoring? Yes. Well, of course, first is the first two, three days is the LEOP, uh, launch and early operations phase. Yeah. This is critical because... Checking. The spacecraft has to be alive and kept yeah. autonomously alive. So mm -hmm. this is very important. And then... This, this brings uh, critical operations with a lot of people working and making sure that everything is fine. Then we have a, a couple of months for commissioning in which if each uh, component of the spacecraft is tested so that mm -hmm. it can work properly. Mm -hmm. In the case of BepiColombo, this takes a long time because of the electric propulsion. This needs a lot of, a oh, lot yeah. of operations for the commissioning. And after these two months, which already is a bit more relaxed than the LEOP, then we will start the proper cruise phase yeah in which uh, typically we would do uh, commanding every week mm -hmm. and uh, where we would switch on the electric propulsion that would be on for a, for a long period of time. So this would be minor corrections of the trajectories so that it... It's not minor, we need it. So oh, okay. this is indeed an interesting question. No? So the, theoretically, you could find trajectories that are ballistic, that they yep. do, not, do not need absolutely any maneuver. Right. Okay, to reach Mercury, this is probably impossible. So you always need deep space maneuvers. Okay that are done at certain key points in the orbit. If you had a, a big engine with chemical propulsion, typically you would do that in a, in a very short period of time, less than a day. But with electric propulsion, we have low thrust. We have very low thrust mm -hmm. uh, because it's a very heavy spacecraft. And then you, this extends for, for uh, many days, even mm -hmm. months. So, okay. for example, the first thrusting arc, it would take about two months. So we have the engine okay. on for two months. So the cruise phase is not one of those where the spacecraft basically goes to sleep, hopefully doesn't use any energy, and then hopefully wakes up again. It's, it's no. more or less active throughout, throughout the trip. Correct. That's okay. correct. Mm -hmm. There are some periods of coast arcs, as we mm -hmm. call them. This is what you mean, that you don't need to thrust. Yep. And there you could, of course, you reduce much more the, the, the operations, no? the, the, the load and operations. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Then, okay, so continuing with this, then we would meet the Earth. And this has, every swim-by has a critical phase, basically 30 days before, in which we need really accurate navigation. We have to target very accurately how we meet the planet so that we get the The, the, the specific impulse. Yeah, the impulse yeah. We, yeah. we want, the magnitude and indirection. And this means we stop, we do not use the electric propulsion to have very accurate orbit determination is what we call the function to determine the position and velocity of a spacecraft. So in order to do that, we need very accurate. Uh, so, so what you're saying, the orbit has to be basically 
not changing all the time because of that's propulsion. Correct. Okay. That's yeah. correct. Mm -hmm. yeah? Because any misperformance of the engine, you always have some little errors. Ah, that, mm -hmm. they, would, they would mess up your yeah. estimation. Right. Of, and then, then we will do very little maneuvers just to correct, but very, very, really, really little, to correct and then have this fine fine tuning. Then after the swing by, we can do a correction, post swing by correction maneuver. Once we, after the swing by, we know very well the result and then we yeah. can correct. And then we have another period in which we are in cruise until the next swing by. So mm -hmm. this, each, the key events are the swing, swing bys. Yeah. Then once we arrive to Mercury, this happens in 2025, hopefully, end of December. Hopefully, I say hopefully because it's very important to remind the people that this is very complex and this yeah. is very difficult and arriving there is such an achievement that when something goes wrong, uh, I think people doesn't realize that how difficult it is to mm -hmm. do it, no? Mm -hmm. Okay, once we arrive there, we would, uh, we would release the, the, the module that is the, is, we've been using for the interplanetary cruise that carries the electric propulsion. We yep. get rid of it so that then we, we have a lighter spacecraft right. for the rest. And then we start the burns for the Mercury orbit insertion. So this means we are in a... burns? Is this chemical now? In this case, it's chemical, okay. yeah. So we, we finish the electric propulsion, and then we use chemical propulsion for the, for the burns. That's very important because, yeah, there is very important, the efficiency around... You want to do it around the closest point to the planet, so this is the pericenter. And if you... If you have low thrust, then you have gravity losses, what we call. So it is inefficient to do it farther mm -hmm. from the planet. Mm -hmm. So it is, this is, it's, typically this is done with chemical propulsion. It is also possible to do something with electric propulsion, but this was not the scenario for this mission. Yeah. I was thinking about this when you talked about the kind of precise entry into the swing by on Earth. I could imagine that, um, I mean, time is limited, obviously, because kind of the speed is fixed. And I could imagine that because of the low thrust compared to chemical propulsion, it's harder to i mean you can't you can't correct as <coughs> as much right? you are completely right so you it has not. to be more precise in the first place yeah but this is uh, this is true and there are missions that they have done this uh, swim bys with electric propulsions for baby since we have chemical propulsion anyway we have a budget allocated of fuel that we can use for this tuning also already on earth also already ah, in the swim bys okay but of course um, electric propulsion, the, the, it has low thrust, but it has high specific impulse. This is what it's called. It's, yeah. We throw the propellant at very high speed, and then it's, it's really so it's, efficient. It's, you, you get lots of um, effect for the mass you carry as fuel. That's correct. Yeah. So if, if possible, you would like to use electric propulsion instead yeah. of chemical. So this is something we are considering, depending yeah. on the size of uh, these correction maneuvers and how accurate we are navigating, we yeah. may replace these chemical burns by, yeah. by electric propulsion. So the specific challenges for this mission, um, are they related to the swing bias with electric propulsion, basically? Is that the, you you said it's a big achievement to get Mercury yes, in the first place. That's What's correct. the problem? Okay, the problem is we use a specific alignment of the planet. So we launch at this time because the, the planets are such that we can do this mm -hmm. kind of pinball in mm -hmm. which we go from one planet to the other. If you miss one of the slots, one of the swim bys, then you are not lost in space, but you are in an orbit that doesn't then cross as mm -hmm. you wanted the planets. And then you would, you would at least have to delay the arrival to Mercury by many, many years okay. if you would miss one of them. So this project has an actual deadline. Yeah, 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 that's correct. That's, yeah, that's correct. And then each time, so of course the mission has been designed a long time ago, yeah. and it was not originally this launch date. It was previous years. Mm -hmm. So ah. each time we have to look for this okay. kind of geometry, okay. and each time is a bit different one. But but it does repeat. It, but it, yeah, it does repeat, but with a period very very high. Yeah. 
So, okay, in terms of trajectory navigation, this is the challenge. And the challenge means you have low thrust, which is less control authority, like you were yeah. saying. You have to thrust over long periods of time, so you have chances. The probability that that is a problem and then this interrupts the thrust is high. So you have to also account for that. And in the trajectory design, you have to account that you have margins for contingency right. recovery, mm -hmm. which also is complex. complex. Um, also, the asset for navigation for orbit determination, this is also complicated. So this is uh, more complexity. And, but also in terms of spacecraft, the biggest, biggest, uh, challenge is once you are in Mercury, you are so close to the sun that you have the, t the temperatures oh. that you, you, you have to withstand are, are, are incredible. You receive a lot of power from the sun mm -hmm. that you have to try to reflect as much as you can. Mm -hmm. And the part you absorb, you, you have to irradiate it. So right. normally the spacecraft have, have a, a hot face that is looking to the sun and a cold face in the back. And that one normally has a big radiator. And yeah. in the case of Bebe, is huge, the radiator, mm -hmm. because you want to radiate as much heat, the, the heat you cannot reflect, and the one you generate because every unit, of course, you know, some heat. No? So, uh, so the design of the spacecraft with heat pipes and stuff is also a challenge itself. Indeed, this mm -hmm. is a big challenge. And then if you look at Bebe, normally spacecraft are typically cubes or... Yep. If you look at Bepi, it has in the backside where the radiator is, it's even bigger. It's more, more like a trapezoid. Mm -hmm. And this is because the, the, the area that is required for the radiator is, right. is bigger than in a, in a normal case. Mm -hmm. And also the radiator has something really interesting is that when you have Mercury, Mercury can be because you orient it such that it, the sun doesn't hit in the radiator. Mm -hmm. If yeah. it would hit, would be end of mission, by the way. Okay. This is also a challenge. So the orientation mm -hmm. of the spacecraft is critical. Mm -hmm. And this is a challenge because in every possible mode, the spacecraft has to autonomously uh, avoid the sun in that So in phase. terms of software design, failover, redundancy. Correct. And also when you design the way how it moves, for example, in order to point the sensor somewhere, you have to make sure that it doesn't transiently somehow briefly hit the sun with the radiator. That's correct. That's mm -hmm. correct. Mm -hmm. And there are certain geometries in which... You have sun, the sun in the back, just to say, and Mercury in front. Mm -hmm. So if you want to have the radiator away from the sun, then you have to point it towards Mercury. Mm -hmm. But Mercury has what we call albedo, so it's reflecting reflecting mm -hmm. the sun, the light from the sun. Of course, this is uh, like we see the moon in that night. Yeah. And this also heats up. Mm -hmm. So indeed, this was also a challenge. And the radiator has an interesting feature is that from certain, if you look at it from certain direction, it's like a mirror, so it would reflect the, oh. the light coming from Mercury. Well, if you look from mm -hmm. another direction, it is black. This, this is the color of a radiator. So it's basically. kind of a directional radiator, if That's, you will. Yeah, in one direction it's yeah. a mirror, in the other it's a... Cool. And this is really, really nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you already mentioned, um, in terms of trajectory design, what factors in... So it's it's clearly well the geometry and the the, the fact that you need the swing bias I guess because you couldn't carry as much fuel to that's do this correct it's, uh, it's impossible yeah, yeah. to reach Mercury only without swing bias it's it's same order of magnitude than to go to Pluto just to just mm -hmm. to imagine mm -hmm. in terms of delta v yeah. yeah then the time to target I guess you don't want this to fly for fifteen or twenty years mm -hmm. ten is bad enough in quotes yes so that's, that's correct criteria. yeah you always want to minimize uh, the cruise yeah for us in navigation it's really cool to do the swim bys but that's not the objective of the mission <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so the scientists want to arrive to mercury and do that science yes. before they retire yes, yes that's <laughs> right and then uh th there's a trade-off between the mass you have for the science payload and the mass you need for propulsion right so mm -hmm. that's a, a tra an, an aspect that's correct yeah so this is very important 
you, when you start in the design, this emission analysis phase very early, the first thing you look at is the delta V budget. So mm-hmm. how much delta V you need to arrive to, to your target? Delta V is how you measure the basically the energy you need because it's like the, the amount of speed direction speed vector right speed direction it's delta speed, velocity delta yeah velocity. that's correct the speed yeah. is delta velocity what yeah. it means yeah yeah it's it's the measure of how much uh, how much at the end fuel you would need for right. certain yeah. mass yeah. yeah but energy is not such a good unit for this the, the proper the most useful one is uh, delta velocity this is why we always talk about delta v why, delta why don't you use energy by the way let's say you you are you are releasing the 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 propellant mm-hmm. at certain speed and uh, the energy would go with the with the square of the velocity, mm-hmm. but really what matters here is uh, conservation of linear momentum because what which, at which velocity you throw the mass times the mass that you throw, this is what the impulse you gain in your in yeah. your spacecraft. And then what matters is a linear relation between uh, of velocity, not okay. a square. That yeah. is what what energy would talk about. Yeah. That's okay. that's a, a key point. Right. Yeah, so you never hear about only for rockets. This is sometimes mentioned, yes. but for spacecraft we never never yeah. Think about energy in that sense. Okay. And so, how does this work? Is there, I hope you don't answer with Excel, but is there some kind of (laughs) numeric, I mean, I get this answer very often that, you know, all kinds of very advanced things are done with a really crappy spreadsheet. So I hope that's not the answer. I mean, is there a software package where you maintain everybody's understanding of the various masses and payloads and budgets for fuel and for payload how does this technically work to to design this thing consistently yeah okay this is very interesting so for each each team they have their own tools Mm -hmm. um in our case in in mission analysis and flight dynamics also we have our in-house developed tools Mm -hmm. so we develop the software we are the the engineers know about the software because they they create it and for each mission you have to extend it you have to modify Mm -hmm. it etc and then we operate the software in the sense that we use it we we configure it so that we get the results we need. And uh, so this is programmed in, in typically old, old software in Fortran, also C++, Python tools. No? The usual scientific mix of all kinds of things yes, scripted yes, together. Uh, <laughs> that's correct. So no Excel. It's very Good. rare we use Excel. Also no graphical user interface. Typically you are just configuring with text files what okay. you want, typically, and then plotting. It's very important to get the... Mm-hmm. To get the yeah, the geometry of what you are doing. No, this is in our side in mission analysis and flight dynamics. Then, when you put this all together for us for a for a the design of a mission, the yeah. full design, which implies what the scientists want, where the instruments are going to be placed in the spacecraft, which yeah. components the spacecraft needs. This this is a mix of many experts, mm-hmm. and this exchange, these are, are done with uh, also in-house tool by ESA, which is for concurrent design. So you can mm-hmm. you can let's say, in real time, uh, get the inputs from the subsystems you need and provide outputs to, to the others. So, but these are not documents, as in prose text with tables. This it's is data model, structures. It's that a data be, model. It's a model, yeah, yeah exactly. That's it's correct. It's a data I'm, model yes. in which subsystem, mm-hmm. okay. each subsystem is modeled yeah. with the properties. Yeah. And then, of course, some properties are a function of other properties sure. of other subsystems, yes. and you provide outputs that are. So yeah. this is a bit. And then they have feedback relationships, of course. Yes. Which yes. is why the whole thing must be some kind of iterative numerical that's process. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, it is iterated numerical or manual, depends. <laughs> right. Yeah, okay, it is iterated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, but, but there's no closed analytic solution. No, no definitely yeah. not at all. Huh? Yes. Not at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very roughly, how many parameters go into this, if you would have to put a order of magnitude okay, number? Okay, this I cannot tell you. I know for not for the whole mission design. I cannot tell you. Yeah, I can okay. tell you about the trajectory design. 
So in the case of BepiColombo, you can be thinking several hundreds of parameters to optimize, just right. to optimize the trajectory, in which you are only thinking about the orbit. The spacecraft is a point, just to right. say. Yes. It doesn't yeah, have yeah. a... Yeah. Um, and you may have similar order of magnitude of constraints. So mm -hmm. this means you cannot mm -hmm. do whatever you want because, for example, the engine, the, the electric right. propulsion cannot be, cannot be illuminated by the sun. So you can only thrust, you cannot thrust in the sun direction. You mm -hmm. can, and not opposite to the sun direction either. Mm -hmm. So you have to thrust in certain allowed region. And, uh, okay, many other constraints, distances to the sun because we need power in order to operate. Right. Uh, duration of eclipses. So, for example, this set swim by we were mentioning, we have a constraint that we cannot have a longer eclipse than 34 minutes. So we have to make sure. Because then the battery's capacity exactly. is over. Yeah. And these kind of constraints, right. altitude of the swim bys. Of course, the lower the altitude, the, the, the higher the kick you get. Right. But, uh, okay, you have safety requirements. You have uh, thermal requirements also. For example, we have Venus swim by. We have thermal thermal requirements so venus has an atmosphere as it has an atmosphere and you don't want to but it's again this is the albedo so the the, right, the, okay. the, the radiation received uh, sent by venus would heat up the spacecraft and then there are there's also limits there right. these are the kinds of constraints we have okay so so it's basically two things it's it's basically it's optimization problem in That's terms correct. of absolutely time fuel uh, consumption and then it takes into, okay, I see, that's interesting. I didn't look at it as an optimization problem. It yeah. is definitely an optimization, yeah. yeah. This is the tools we use uh, because you always want to find the optimum. Now the question is, what? Well, how do you define your optimum, which is what exactly. we call the cost function. Yes. <laughs> but uh, you always try to optimize because you always have something that is important and then you want to find yeah. the best solution for that. So, so what is the optimum as part of the requirements, basically? Mm -hmm. For example, you could say it's more important for us to get there faster. And if we do that, we give you a little bit more fuel budget because we're not going to take an X sensor. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Yeah, that's in this case, um, it's difficult to arrive faster to Mercury, just okay. to say. No? So, okay. so in reality, you find, okay, this is what I was telling you about the optimization process, etc. This is a high fidelity model in which you are modeling all the forces acting with to the mm -hmm. spacecraft with high fidelity. And then you numerically integrate the trajectory yeah. uh, and you change you vary your parameter parameters domain so that you find the, the optimum you can also do very simple analytic uh, trajectories oh, yeah. basically this is what is called patch conics because essentially the trajectories are conics mm -hmm. if you think that you have a central body and you forget about all the all the rest so when you are around the earth or close to the earth yeah, you, your central body is the yeah. earth that's all yeah. well, then once you leave you have your central body is the sun once you arrive Venus, etc., okay. and then you can the if you have only one central body, and the, all, you you assume like all the mass would be concentrated in the center, then the trajectories have an analytical solution yeah. already known from centuries, right. which are uh, Keplerian trajectories, yeah. Keplerian orbits they are called, and then you can so you can find preliminary solutions that are just to say rough solutions, but they give you already the okay. spirit of the swim bys you are going to mm -hmm. fly. And this, we do a search of all possible combinations so that we find this, these alignments of the planets that we, are, we ah, want. okay. Mm -hmm. And then once we have so this... So this is a search in a discrete space, basically. It's just not, to say, okay. yeah. Mm -hmm. We have like a roadmap of, if I go do a swim-by to this planet with certain, certain V-infinity, so velocity with respect to the planet, uh, then I can, I can reach the other one later. And mm -hmm. using this roadmap, you can mm -hmm. find all possible combinations and then you explore it. You test them right. to see whether 
whether then you can reach them in the proper time, because that's the important thing. Yeah. The facing is very important. Yeah. Yeah. And then once you have this preliminary solution, then you plug into the high fidelity model. Okay. With then you all decide the when you burn, how long you burn, how you turn. Just to say, yeah, this I is see. how it, this is a bit how it works. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So then it's maybe maybe even a, a three-step process. In the first one, you actually like do brain-based thinking. Like what would be good candidates for swing bias? Then you do the searching for the, if you will, yeah. major decisions. And then you do the numerical high fidelity simulation for the uh, optimization of when to burn, how much, and so on. That's correct. Okay. In this preliminary solution, so the second step you mentioned, you can already, well, you probably will have already these deep space maneuvers, but there you would model them as we call impulsive. So this right. means you get the delta V instantaneously. Yep. And then you have to, with, especially with electric propulsion, now you, and this yeah. has to extend, yeah. and then you have to see whether it fits or not. I see. So, as we were saying, the cost function. So, if already in this preliminary search, you already find the ones that have smallest delta v. So, you need the b smallest maneuvers are already good candidates because when yeah. you convert them in the in the high fidelity model, probably it will fit. Yeah. While one that spends a lot, probably it will not fit. Yeah. And so, but specifically for electrical propulsion, it might be that, let's say, uh, a time of flight, like one leg, if you will, isn't long enough to affect the delta V that you then need because the propulsion has too much, uh, too little, well, impulse per time. That's correct, yeah. So typically we can do, in the best case, about six meters per second per day with the, in the mm -hmm. case of Bepi Colombo. So if you have an arc that lasts two months, you know, yeah. you know how much you have. Yeah. That's all. So in the actual cruise phase, how do you determine the orbit? Ah, yeah. This, so this we haven't talked about. So this is this process of orbit determination. Yeah. Typically for interplanetary spacecraft, that's no like GPS system. So low Earth orbits, they can, it's very nice. They have a GPS receiver yeah. on board and they then do. they do. Yeah. Yeah. And then they can determine very well already just with, with this device, like we yeah. do with our car and the, yeah. and the road. For interplanetary spacecraft, this is not possible. There are some ideas, but I would say they are <laughs> very premature yes, to yes. say that it's possible. But using quasars and using uh, stars and using, they try to, to do something. Mm -hmm. But uh, okay, this is not, not possible at all. Would be the Maybe same. in some. In some Decades. Same abbreviation, right? Galactic positioning system. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> okay, so then what we do, we use our ground stations from Earth, and we need them to communicate to the spacecraft, but at the same time, they are recording what we call the Doppler measurement. So this mm -hmm. is a shift in frequency that it tells you the velocity. So the same signal that used to, that's used to transport the data is analyzed to understand the Doppler effect. That's correct. All so right. then you get the measurement of the relative velocity between the ground station and the spacecraft. Yeah. Also, we do ranging measurements. That is something similar to, to what is a GPS signal. And then we get the time of flight. So how much time it takes the signal to go from Earth to the spacecraft and back. Mm -hmm. And this gives us a measurement of the distance from them. And this, with these two, this is bread and butter for interplanetary navigation. Yeah. Already we can do almost any navigation, but with certain limited accuracy. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, for example, in the swim bys, if you need higher accuracy, then you need more refined orbit determination and more refined measurements. And the typical one, also in interplanetary navigation, is called delta door. This is a double difference uh, range measurement mm -hmm. in which with two ground stations on, on Earth simultaneously, normally separated uh, by thousands of kilometers, you, you receive the signal from the spacecraft and from a quasar next to the spacecraft. Mm -hmm. And with these four measurements, 
by differencing them, you get the very accurate measurement of the position of the spacecraft in the, in the sky as seen from Earth. Yes, Relative to the two positions that measure. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. And this is highly accurate and then it's used for critical operations, for example, before typically for the Mars mission, before arriving to Mars, you would do that. Mm -hmm. Or in this case for Swinby, you would also do that. But then, then the rest of the cruise is mainly range and Doppler measurements. Mm -hmm. So this also works very far away, I take it. This, yes, mm -hmm. that's, that's no problem. The accuracy doesn't degrade too much by the distance. It does, but not too much. Mm -hmm. What it degrades is at the end you get a measurement. You derive an angular, an angular measurement from Earth to the spacecraft, the mm -hmm. angle. And this, of course, increases with the distance how much it turns out to be in right. space. Yeah. Yeah. Assuming the precision of the angular measurement is fixed, which it probably is, kind for of the yeah. kind of devices on Earth, this means that the further you go away, the bigger the absolute error That's is. Correct. Yeah, That's okay. correct. Mm -hmm. And this, this is also the same for delta door, but delta door, the angle is much smaller, just right. to mm -hmm. say. Yeah? Mm -hmm. yeah, and then, okay, how, the, how this is done, then typically we do planning cycles every week. Mm -hmm. This would be the case for Bepi Colombo. So then we, we get all the tracking data, as we call tracking data, is measurements done from the ground stations that we have in, in the last few months, so an arc. And we use that in an estimation process, very similar to optimization, right. but in this case, it's an estimation process, yeah. so that we estimate position and velocity of the spacecraft, yeah. plus everything that affects the, the trajectory of the spacecraft, in particular, calibrations of how is the performance of the engine, which is very important. Mm -hmm. Ah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, now and once we have position and velocity, we can then optimize the, the maneuvers we have in the future so that how would we, should we do them, mm -hmm. basically in which direction we want to thrust and, and for how long, so that we then arrive to the target. So basically you're rerunning the trajectory planning as the mission progresses, but then with the real measurements instead That's of correct. with the original That's plan. Correct. So you have a reference trajectory, just yep. to say, yep. and always you will vary you will have some error so you will be around the reference but right. you will you are never exact at the reference and or, even if you were you wouldn't know because you always have an error in, in your estimation so <laughs> yeah. you don't really know exactly yeah. where the spacecraft is yeah. you know with certain certain yeah. tube around it yeah. Yeah. and then anyway then you have always to do this this iterating process yeah. in this case it's typically every week for example before the swim by we would increase the frequency then you would have for the last two weeks maybe every few days mm -hmm. and this is how it works for each uh, any mission mm -hmm. this is uh, this and is. and the 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 antennas you use for measuring they are they're not necessarily all ESA equipment but also partner agencies i suspect this can be the case for uh, earth orbit missions for deep space missions they are so far that you need a big antenna and then there are not many partners that oh, they have yeah so we typically we have good cooperation with nasa yeah so we have ESA has uh, three deep space antenna They are separated about 120 degrees in longitude. So mm -hmm. this means as the Earth rotates, you would always have one antenna of yours right. that could communicate to, with your spacecraft. And then we also use uh, ground stations from NASA. And for NASA missions, we also share yeah. our ground station time. So this is a good cooperation yeah. we, because sometimes one fits better than the other. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, so basically with six locations on the Earth, Three from ESA, three from three from NASA. This is what we what we yeah. use to communicate. Yeah, and considering that it's not that time critical, uh, like every day, I guess you could worst case wait until kind of the ESA antenna comes around and sees the thing, right? You you you, you average anyway over long periods of time, so it's not that time critical. That's correct. Yeah. That's only in these critical phases, as yes, we were mentioning. Right. Then you need to make sure you have yeah. 
maybe even 24-hour coverage, right. like in the yeah. LEOP, no? okay. for example, you want to have 20, so yeah. around the clock, you want to be seeing what is happening on the space. Yeah. 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 But that's more for data exchange than for uh, orbit determination. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. All right, so what did I forget to ask? <laughs> I don't know. Have you slept enough so you can be awake <laughs> tonight? Yes, yes, yes. Well, okay, so I have a shift. I have the second shift. Mm -hmm. So tonight I can't sleep. <laughs> okay. And then I start my shift at 4 in the afternoon until 4 in the morning. Okay. So this is yeah, a 12-hour shift. 12-hour shift, yeah. shift. Yeah, yeah okay. this is typically the schedule is like this, 12 hours. And how long does... And that's then for the seven years? No. No, no, no. This only, only for yes, this critical be. phase, okay. yeah, for the Leo. Oh, yeah. Okay. Three to three days. Two, three okay. Days. All right. Well, thank you very much. This was very interesting. Thanks to you. Pleasure. Eh? Yeah, it was very interesting. Cool. I enjoyed the conversation. A lot. Cool. Me too. <laughs> All right. So this was Pablo. And now we're going to chat with four scientists about the scientific aspects. I recorded, obviously, four people with four external microphones, and I had to talk into the built in microphone, which is why I'm sounding a bit worse. All right. Let's go. Um, I'm Joana Oliveira. Uh, I'm working at ESA as a research fellow, and I'm studying the magnetic field of Mercury. Okay, so do you a magnetic person? Exactly. Okay. Uh, I'm Ayako Matsuka, coming from the uh, JAXA, uh, Japan, and uh, I'm the, uh, the working on the uh, MMO spacecraft, and mm -hmm. uh, I'm the, uh, also working on the magnetic field. Uh, I'm uh, the co-PI of the magnetometer team. Okay. Hi, I'm Roberto Peron. I'm a researcher in the Italian National Institute of Astrophysics in the Experimental Gravitation Group, and I'm co-investigator of the Heiser Accelerometer. Okay, so you're gravity, basically. Yeah, gravity okay. guy. Mm -hmm. And good afternoon. My name is George Sender. I work at the European Space Agency as Deputy Project Scientist for the BepiColombo mission. Okay, so you're the... Big picture guy, or do you I'm, also have kind of some kind of specialty that you're particularly interested I'm in? I'm the big picture guy, but I'm especially interested in everything which is interacting with the solar wind and the sun, because I'm also studying the sun. All right. So let's start with a, I mean, everybody knows the spacecraft is going to Mercury, right? Um, have there been uh, science missions before, or is this the first time? There have been um, observations from three different spacecraft in the 17s. In the uh, in the 70s, NASA did send uh, two Mariner spacecraft uh, to Mercury. These were flybys, individual flybys. So the data was kind of reduced, but at this time gave us uh, extremely valuable insight uh, into Mercury. Then from 2011 to 2015, there was the Messenger spacecraft. Mm -hmm. Uh, orbiting uh, Mercury, again, a NASA spacecraft, which extended our view on Mercury considerably. Okay. And uh, how would you explain Baby Colombo? How is it different? How is it more... Pre I mean, hmm. why another mission? Yeah, why another, <laughs> uh, why another mission? Uh, um, le let's start at something obvious, visual. Um, Baby Colombo is much bigger in this sense. Yeah. On the messenger spacecraft was um, at a rival, I think, a bit more than 100 kilogram. Oh. And Bepi Colombo, in total, we will have a launch mass of four tons. Oh. 
Okay. When we will arrive at Mercury, the planetary orbiter will have a mass of still above one ton, and the Japanese orbiter, I think, is in the range of 140 kilograms. Mm -hmm. So we, we have huge spacecraft, which means we have a huge mass availability for instrumentation, which we are using, and for fuel to keep us in the orbit for a very long time, uh, which means we are complementing uh, the instrumentation that were on Messenger, we are going further out. We are, if I say we are, we have to prove that we are better. We hope that we are proving <laughs> right. that we are better on the instrumentation, but also on the completeness. We're covering the full energy range and the full visual range, the full wavelength range uh, that might be covered. Uh, I think we have on board with an excellent set, a suite of instrumentation. Mm -hmm. the, the spacecraft messenger uh, had an orbit around Mercury very eccentric, so... The northern hemisphere was uh, uh, very well uh, um, uh, measured, but the, the southern hemisphere, somehow we were very far. We were also getting out from the magnetosphere, crossing the magnetopause, so we had no measurements on the magnetic field from the southern hemisphere part. Okay. So Bepi Colombo will be much closer, the NPO part, uh, the European spacecraft, will be much closer in measuring um, the south, and the northern hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And we have two different points, the MPO and MMO, Japanese spacecraft. And we will have two simultaneous measurements of the magnetic field every time. Mm -hmm. So I that know. is awesome to separate the internal from the external sources of a magnetic point of view. Mm -hmm. You could uh, ask uh, how why this strange name? What does it mean, Bepi Colombo? <laughs> you as an Italian yeah. are probably especially suited to answer this. Yeah. <laughs> Bepi Colombo was a person. Giuseppe uh, Bepi Colombo, in, uh, he was born in Veneto. In Veneto, Bepi means Giuseppe. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, its name. Uh, Giuseppe Colombo was uh, a very important person in Italian science. He was a mathematician and engineering and he did a lot of contribution to the exploration of space. Regarding Mercury, we have to remember two basic facts. The first, he was very helpful to NASA in the Minor 10 mission. He helped NASA to extend the duration of the mission. Initially, it was planned to have only one close passage, one flyby around Mercury. He did some celestial mechanics calculation in which he proved that with clever flybys, uh, the orbit could repeat up to three times, and indeed it, it, it happened. So it helped NASA a lot in extended duration of the mission. And then, second basic facts, there is a strange thing about uh, Mercury orbit. It's called 3 to 2 resonance. Mm -hmm. It means that every two revolutions of Mercury um, around the Sun, the planet does three turns about itself. Mm -hmm. This, this is a unique case in the solar system. We know other cases of so-called resonance. For example, the moon is so-called one-to-one. One revolution, one turn. That's why we see only one phase of the moon. Yep. Then uh, Giuseppe Colombo uh, helped to explain this strange fact. And that's, these are the, the two most known acquisitions of him. So, so he, he was... He was alive during the space age. Yeah. That's interesting because normally, at least as far as I 
know or think. Uh, most of these um, spacecraft names of famous scientists are of people, you know, from the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th century, right? More historic people. And here yeah. somebody is, if you will, honored who is not, I mean, probably not alive anymore, but... No, it, yeah. uh, it passed away yeah. in 1984. Yeah, rather recent. Who, right. yeah. Interesting. I, I personally know some colleagues of mine, especially in Pisa, there is a group of celestial mechanics, yeah. which in a sense was spurred. Uh, they gathered uh, around the figure of Giuseppe Colombo, and uh, they, in a sense, they contributed to Italian science along all the second part of the 20th century and the first yeah. part of this century. Yeah, cool. So before we talk about the various fields of science, the various kind of mission uh, objectives, we should probably briefly recap that A, it's a collaboration between ESA and JAXA, right? Yeah. Which is why you're here. Uh, yeah. Um, actually, it's uh, uh, MMO, it, uh, yep, I... Uh, that uh, the, as you know, the, uh, the MPO is built by the, uh, the ESER, mm -hmm. and the MMO is built by JAXA, uh, uh, and uh, we have the uh, two spacecraft. But uh, on the other hand, the, uh, the, for the instrument teams, uh, for the MMO, we invite many, many some the European people mm -hmm. uh, uh, to our team. Um, I think that, uh, generally speaking, the half of the each instrument team is the uh, the, the member of the other uh, uh, mm -hmm. half of the some the member are the European. And mm -hmm. uh, of, uh, on the other hand, of course, the many Japanese are contributing to the, uh, the MPO uh, the, uh, the teams. Mm -hmm. So that we are, I can say that we are making the very, very close uh, the collaboration mm -hmm. between the uh, European and uh, Japan, uh, Japanese. So basically what you're saying is that uh, one team is, if you will, responsible for each spacecraft, but yeah, then yeah. the science is kind of cross-pollinated yeah. between all of them, as I guess it should be. Y yes. Yeah. Uh, actually, the, as Joanna said, that uh, we have the uh, spacecraft uh, for both the MPO and the MMO, and uh, the, we are now... Uh, as for the, some of the sodium atmosphere, mm -hmm. we also have the very similar some of the instrument uh, mm -hmm. for the MMO and the MPO, and we will make the uh, very some of the uh, conjugated as uh, collaborative some of the uh, measurement of uh, the, uh, the, uh, the natrium and the, uh, the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, and so the the main spacecraft will basically drop the. We will have a very long cruise phase of seven years. Yeah. And after seven years in December 2025, we, we, are, we will reach the orbit of Mercury. Yep. And then the transfer module will eject the top of what we now call the composite stack, mm -hmm. so which is the MPO and on top of is the, uh, the MMO. Then the so it's a three-part spacecraft of which a three two, are, two are science, basically, yes. and one is... A bus, transfer, the, yeah, the, the bus, the, yeah. which brings us to Mercury. Yeah, right. So the bus will eject the, the top level two spacecraft in December 2025. Um, and then the, uh, orbiter, the orbiter, the, the ESA orbiter will bring, um, uh, the whole composite into the orbit that the MMO needs to have. Mm -hmm. And when we are in this orbit in January 2026, we will eject the MMO and then the Japanese colleagues can start to prepare for all the operations and they will be ready, I guess, kind of end of end of January. But then the MMO, MPO has to go down in a closer orbit nearer to Mercury 
to the surface and it will take us another six weeks and in kind of mid-March we will have reached this orbit and then we will start to go into our orbit and commission the instruments and mm -hmm. be ready for instrument commanding and observations end of March, beginning of April. Right. What does MPO and MO stand for, the abbreviations? Mercury. The, mm -hmm. It's Orbiter. the Mercury Planetary Orbiter for the ESA part yeah. and the Mercury Magnetospheric Orbiter for okay. the Japanese part. All right. So the MMO really and focuses on magnetics. And the MTM is the Mercury Transfer, Transfer Module. module. Yeah. All right. Okay. So let's look at the various areas of science. And I guess let's start with uh, <laughs> magnetics, uh, the magnetosphere, if it has its own orbiter, right? It seems to be major. Uh, the Mercury itself has the, uh, the planetary magnetic field. Mm -hmm. uh, it is very similar to the, uh, the magnetic field of the Earth, mm -hmm. but the intensity is much, much weaker. Weaker. Mm -hmm. And the surface, uh, uh, the magnetic field at the surface of the Mercury is uh, just 1% of that of the, of the Earth. So the, uh, the magnetic field plays uh, as the, some, the barrier from uh, or for the uh, mercury as uh, uh, the environment mm -hmm. uh, it protects the mercury environment from the solar wind mm -hmm. uh, solar like wind the is a very very fast as uh, a uh, wind uh, from the sun and uh, it is very fast it is runs at uh, about uh, 400 kilometer per second or something okay. is very fast. fast. So the uh, the pressure of the, uh, the, uh, the solar wind is very strong. So the, in the case of the Earth, uh, the magnetic field, intense magnetic field, uh, protects the, uh, the Earth from the solar wind. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the case of the Mercury, uh, sometimes the, uh, the magnetic field cannot uh, the protect the, uh, the, yeah. uh, the Mercury. Because the wind is stronger and yeah. the field is weaker. Yes, 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 that's right, that's right. The, uh, the, uh, the uh, Mercury is uh, very close to the sun, so yeah, exactly. the um, uh, solar wind is much denser. Yeah, so right. the uh, Mercury received a more direct some the, uh, the influence direct some the pressure from the other uh, solar wind mm -hmm. so the, uh, the so the uh, we are now considering that the environment of the mercury is drastically and changing so that we want to study the what is the process of the interaction mm -hmm. between the, uh, the mercury and uh, mercury atmosphere mercury exosphere and the solar wind mm -hmm. okay Okay, and so how do you do that? What do you measure? I guess you, you measure the, the, the strength of the magnetosphere? Yeah, of course the, we measure the, uh, the magnetosphere uh, and the, uh, the charged particle. Charged particle uh, plays a very important role in the, uh, the interaction between the solar wind and the uh, mercury uh, the exosphere. So the, we have the several kinds of the, uh, instrument to measure the partic uh, charged particle and the, and the mercury. Okay. Yeah. And uh, uh, the plasma waves give the, some the energy to the, some the charged particles, so the, we have the very long antenna. Uh, the tip to tip is uh, 30 meters. Oh. Yeah. We, we will uh, deploy the very long uh, the, some the antenna after the insertion around the, uh, on the, some the orbit around the mercury, and uh, the, we will measure the plasma waves um, uh, using that as uh, some antenna. And mm -hmm. we also measure the uh, sodium the atmosphere and uh, the dust around the mercury. Mm -hmm. Okay, and the dust is measured optically? No, uh, it is some the direct measurement. Oh. I, uh, we count the, some okay. the dust. Okay. Yeah. okay, all right. 
And so what's your perspective? You said you work on magnetosphere. Ma no, mag magnetic field, internal magnetic field. Ah, I see. All right. <laughs> the okay. movement um, of a liquid core uh, convecting is producing the global magnetic mm -hmm. field of Mercury. Mm -hmm. That is the, the field that is interacting with mm -hmm. uh, the, the solar wind, creating the magnetosphere. Right. Okay, so you look at how the field is created. I'm looking inside. How do you do that? Um, so the magnetic field is, is... No, magnetic field <laughs> measurements actually is a good measurement of inside the planet. At least uh, if we have a, a magnetic field of uh, um, core origin, we know that at least the core is uh, somehow molten liquid, yes. convecting somehow. Like we don't the Earth, know, yeah. Like the Earth or, or maybe some slightly different because we see some features that are not Earth-like, uh, uh, like the, um, the, the field is very smooth, there is um, very axisymmetric, mm -hmm. meaning that there are no different uh, spots uh, like we see on, on the Earth magnetic field. That is weird, that is very difficult to explain with dynamo uh, models, mm -hmm. and so we, we are trying to understand why is that. Mm -hmm. uh, another feature that is very weird as well and uh, hard to explain is the, the magnetic equator is located in the um, northern hemisphere. Uh -huh. okay. uh, our, uh, the Earth's magnetic equator is a little bit sometimes in the northern hemisphere, in the southern hemisphere. But it's hemisphere, basically around the equator. Exactly, the geographic equator, yeah. but yeah. Not, not in Mercury and that we cannot explain either. What are the theories? I mean, you must have some some hypotheses why that's the case, right? Or, um, or aren't there any? There are several ideas. Uh, yes, um, um, uh, iron snow processes mechanism inside the car could explain, but mm -hmm. sometimes uh, the the time scales are are um, the axisymmetric is not uh, well reproduced. Mm -hmm. um, there is also the idea of the um, um, uh, top layer uh, in the car that is filtering out the small scales oh and yeah. only the, the large scales are passing through that layer mm -hmm. and so on and so on. The ideas are not missing, but uh, we, we don't have the idea right. to um, uh, show uh, the right now uh, data that we have. And so how do you hope will BepiColombo help with this? Exactly. That's why we are uh, trying to see that with BepiColombo. Uh, we will measure uh, internal magnetic field in the southern hemisphere. See if our data in the moment is not oh, by because eyes. because there the data is missing so far. Exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. We are missing a lot of data. Yeah. And, and we will do a better separation of internal and external sources magnetic field. Because both because are measured. Because we have measured. two spacecraft. We are okay. going together. Yes. You said external, did you say external, external sources? sources? What could be an external source? Yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, that the, because the solar wind pushed the, uh, the magnetosphere of the uh, mercury and uh, it generates the, some the current around the uh, mercury. All right. Okay, and uh, uh, so the current will, uh, of course, uh, generate the magnetic field, yeah. uh, secondary uh, magnetic field. Right. So the, uh, the magnetic field measured around the mercury is a mixture mm -hmm. of the, in, uh, the internal magnetic field and some external right. uh, the, uh, magnetic field. Yeah, so okay. that we must separate the right. uh, two components. And, and so by separating that, you can then basically use only the data that's allocated to the internal field and put that into your theory, hopefully exactly. making that yes. theory better. Yes. Okay, that's interesting. If you have a current in the atmosphere, that's interesting for electric aircraft propulsion, I guess. You can somehow grab this and <laughs> drive the propeller. <laughs> Joke. Um, all right, um, what else on magnetics? 
Um, I might uh, maybe uh, explain about the crystal magnetic field. Of course. Um, so, um, in most of all uh, telluric uh, planets... Uh, all, all what? Telluric, terrestrial okay. rocks. Okay. <laughs> Um, in the beginning, in the early stage of the planet's formation, um, it was a pool uh, of uh, liquid, right. uh, hot, um, molten materials. Lava exactly. Thing. So that lava uh, loses uh, some heat and it uh, starts to um, solidify. Mm -hmm. And in that process, if we have uh, um, a car magnetic field operating, a, um, a dynamo operating, that moment creating the magnetic field. Um, that uh, uh, rocks cooling down slowly can record and register mm -hmm. the direction of the, the north pole of mm -hmm. that at that time exactly, and that it could be also something that we are looking for to um, uh, have constraints in nowadays magnetic field, but also in the past magnetic fields to see all evolution since the beginning until now. How does Pepe Colombo help you with collecting that data? I mean, how do you separate that? We have that? To, to wait for a little ah, bit. So that's a hope. Yes, okay. it is. I'm waiting for it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Let's talk about other areas. Oh, okay. Gravitation. Yes, for example. <laughs> you can ask uh, how, how it's involved gravitation in this. Okay, we have at least... Uh, one, how big is Mercury, just roughly? So we have a, like a comparison to the Earth. I think it's smaller, right? Yes, yes. between uh, the Moon and Mars, more or less. Okay. I all think right. the radius is yeah. 2,400 kilometers. Third so it's, of Earth. It's a third of the Earth. Yeah, okay, all right. You have to imagine like a sort of Moon uh, revolving around the Sun. That mm. could be a good image. Yeah. Okay, uh, we can use gravitation as a probe. A probe in two... two meanings I will try to explain. One, a probe of the interior and the other probe of fundamental physics. Uh, you know that uh, Mercury is the, uh, belongs to the class of so-called terrestrial planets, mm -hmm. so it is in very important in order to reconstruct the history of the formation of the solar system to uh, explore its uh, internal uh, com composition, history, and so on. Mercury, on this aspect, is a planet as it said, a, a planet of mysteries. No, it says here on the, on the, on the wall. Mm -hmm. uh, Mercury's mysteries. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Uh, it, evidence has been uh, gathered that the density of Mercury is strange, uh, is higher with respect to the other terrestrial planets. Mm -hmm. And also, since uh, uh, Mercury has a magnetic field, you have to have an internal mechanism for producing that, mm -hmm. like much the Earth, so you expect a dynamo, and a dynamo requires at least a partially molten core, mm -hmm. which is something that was not expected with the previous model of its formation. So you have to have a sort of mean to see inside the planet. Mm -hmm. and so you can see how to see inside the planet. You cannot see directly with the, yes. your cameras, but you have gravitation. Gravitation, it, with gravitation you can see almost everything, and how you can do I mean, what, what, what can you actually see? You can see the, um, you can basically measure the gravitational yeah, G, right? The equivalent yeah, of G? Yeah, but you, you measure in a indirect way. So, you have your probe that is uh, yeah. revolving around the planet, and uh, depending on the internal composition, 
density and also yes. inhomogeneities of mass, mm -hmm. the orbit will be perturbed. Right. So it would be a little bit more flattened, less flattened, there will be local variation, and so you have to measure with extreme accuracy the orbit. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the main tasks of every space interplanetary space mission, that we call it navigation. You But it's used for a purpose of understanding where you are, and you're using it as, yes. a, as a sensor, if you will. Yes. Consider that Baby Colombo has very incredible uh, navigation capabilities. How? Uh, for, uh, for example, we can measure the instantaneous position with an accuracy smaller than one meter. H how do you do that? Oh, there is a very complicated system. We call it tracking in technical terms. Mm -hmm. So you use, uh, you use uh, uh, electromagnetic waves which are exchanged between Earth station and the spacecraft. The spacecraft has a radio. Yep. It has to communicate. Okay, so I, I just talked to Pablo about uh, orbits and basically mission analytics. Yeah. So you use those mechanisms yeah. that are used kind of anyway, but how do you get them so precise? Yeah, uh, we, we have uh, two main improvements with respect to other missions. Mm -hmm. The first, uh, we have uh, so-called KA band transponder, so a device which uh, lets you... It's a sort of virtual mirror mm -hmm. you know, that, mm -hmm. that reflects uh, in a virtual way the yep. electromagnetic waves. And we do it uh, on a higher frequency, about 32 gigahertz, that lets you make very precise velocity and distance measurements. Doppler effect. Yeah. Right. And the other instrument, the first time for uh, this space mission, is called accelerometer. Ah, yeah. Okay. Uh, the accelerometer is a device like that you have in your car that uh, drives the airbag, but a little bit more precise. Yeah. Uh, ideally, we would have uh, our trajectory only driven by gravity. So. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's not so that. There are other forces which we call non-gravitational forces, which are due, for example, to the push of the, of the photons. Uh, yeah. You just uh, you have to imagine the light as small balls, the photons that push, yeah. and make uh, a, a, a small shift of the trajectory. And this is a sort of noise which uh, mm -hmm. perturbs our measurement. Yeah. So we have to measure it, and the accelerometer is a device that measures it. Just to give you an ah, answer. Because, because this force uh, operates yeah. in a different direction. Yeah, right? it, okay. yeah and yeah. it could mask. Yeah. You, could, right. uh, you could see that it was gravitation inside, it was a photon. You, you have to separate. I, could, I guess as long as you go kind of um, ten, 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 tangential, well, you always go tangentially. No, yes, if you go uh, uh, away from the sun, yeah. then the effect you get from the photons yeah. doesn't affect the height of the orbit and there yeah, I guess it's easy yeah, but, but on the other side in, in practice we measure all the three components yes. and we expect uh, uh, forces not only from the sun but also from the surface of mercury which is hot oh, right. so it produces microwave radiation yeah. that impacts yeah. To give you a number, how precise is our instrument, uh, it, the smaller acceleration signal measures 10 to the minus 8 meters per second square. What does it mean? Imagine that you apply such a small acceleration mm -hmm. for, to an object, to a, this table, for example, for an hour. Mm -hmm. Your table will uh, shift after one hour by less than 7 centimeters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. imagine how small are these forces that mm -hmm. we want to measure. And so uh, in terms of how these accelerometers work, uh, are these 
I mean, is there innovation in the particular yeah. measuring device? Yeah. Uh, it's the first time that a deep space mission has a such a device. Mm -hmm. Other missions really do not require this. Mm -hmm. But due to the harsh environment of Mercury, this is required. And this is uh, um, a funny story how uh, different areas of research can cross-fertilize The uh, development of the accelerometer was a spin-off of the development of gravitational wave detectors. Ah! The first generation yeah. of gravitational wave detectors was not the current one, the interferometer, yeah, yeah. but what they were called bars, so big aluminum bars that were meant to oscillate when they were hit ah, yeah, okay. by the gravitational waves. Yeah. And the device that was uh, uh, meant for reading the small vibration of the bar was called a Western transducer and was the core over which uh, the accelerometer is built after a very long mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. So this is a nice example of how development in one year of yeah, research right. could pass to another. Yeah, taxpayer will be happy. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh, I would uh, just uh, conclude this part with the other, for me, that is very fascinating, so fundamental physics. Yes. We want to do a very precise test of Einstein's theory of general relativity. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity is uh, really now not a very difficult theory, but in fact it's very simple. You just uh, say that space-time is curved and uh, gravitation is just a motion in this curved mm -hmm. space-time. So very simple. But uh, uh, this description of gravitation is rather different from what of Newton. The intuitive one, yeah. yeah. And so our means is just to compare. So C measure the motion of NPO, and especially of Mercury around the Sun, and see if Newton was right or if Einstein was right. Since the two theories predict different motion of Mercury around the Sun. And so the, the, the basic point is that we are close to the Sun. The closer you are to a mass, ah, that's the, point. the, the higher the, the relativistic effect right. you expect. Right. So if you had a, a spacecraft around Pluto or Jupiter, you, you are not so sensitive right. to this small effect. On Mercury, we are close to so the Sun. you're exploiting the fact that you're very close to a big gravitational mass, yeah. where the effects are bigger. In this case, the big is not... Mercury, but it's not the, the sun. sun. Yeah, yeah, the of sun. course. Yes. May I add a, a story there, which I think is fascinating from the past. In the 1840s, uh, our yeah, colleagues at this time, they were able to predict all of the orbits of all the planets, and this was very much under control. Uh, except Mercury was a mystery already at this time. So the Mercury orbit around the Sun is highly elliptical. Mm -hmm. The point near to the Sun we call pericenter. Mm -hmm. And this pericenter point is moving every orbit mm -hmm. and is moving over the centuries. So what you're saying is that the, the, the ellipse is kind of itself yes, rotating the, the around the Sun. Yes, exactly. And, yeah. this, and this rotation of this nearest point, um, nobody could <coughs> predict at this time. Right. They applied Newton mechanics And and it didn't fit. There were, I think it's about 100 to 150 meters per century where it didn't fit, but okay. the, the, the uh, observatories were good enough to measure this. And the only way out for them was to invent a new planet. So the planet <laughs> Vulcan was invented. Okay. And with this planet between Venus and Mercury, they could perfectly predict this uh, pericenter movement 
and and they could calculate <coughs> the mass and the orbit they could calculate all of the attributes mm -hmm. of this planet the only problem was Wasn't nobody there. could see it yeah well, so right? it was also invisible as another property it was <laughs> invisible the invisible planet so to say and let's say our poor colleagues they spent uh, decades and with campaigns and searching for the planet when was that roughly this was from uh, 18 14 15 okay. until 1910 Mm -hmm. when Albert Einstein published a paper with the title The Pericenter Movement of Mercury. Oh, he directly addressed and, that. And he put the paper out. The planet was gone forever. Nobody mentioned it anymore mm -hmm. because he could very accurately yeah. with the general relativity predict this pericenter movement. Okay, cool. That's a very interesting story for me which shows me that science sometimes goes not gradually but in steps. Yes. <laughs> And, 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 and people go to strange lengths to try to explain a phenomenon they don't understand then with the established theories instead of coming up with a new theory, which of course isn't so simple, but anyway. Which is not so simple, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah this is uh, an interesting story we can learn uh, that uh, in that case that uh, Joe explained, there were two competing theories for explaining that mysterious phenomena. Mm -hmm. One theory says, okay, we have to add something that mm -hmm. we don't see. The other theory says, no, change the rule of the game. Mm -hmm. And in that case, it was the second yeah. that was. And we can find these uh, things even today uh, when we speak about the dark energy, dark matter, and right. so on. There are some people who say, okay, there is something missing, and we call dark matter yeah. or dark energy. Mm -hmm. While other people say, no, we have to change the theory. Einstein was wrong. And... Uh, Our attempt is just to, to add a, a small bricks of knowledge in then okay, if you asked myself, I would, would bet that Einstein was right. So if we accumulate, but we have to remember that we are doing science, and so we have to continuously experiment. It's an interesting philosophical question, I think. When you assume or accept uh, a theory as, you know, in quotation marks, true, and stop trying to confirm it. Mm. Do you ever, right? I think it's an interesting question. It's an interesting question. Because yes. you can't do it forever, because yeah. then you, get to do, you don't get to do other stuff, right? So anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah. interesting question. Um, do you guys also, quote, take pictures? Is the, the, yes, the I can maybe iterate... Uh, yeah, on on the on the surface. Sure. So also the surface. So we covered the the uh, the exosphere, the magnetosphere, the magnetic field, the interior, and and so. So um, let's say the main part of the uh, of the ESA orbiter is the interior and and the surface science. Mm -hmm. So we are we have a, a whole suite of instrumentation to cover uh, the surface. So we we have of course. Uh, Optical, we do optical imaging, we have infrared, we have UV, we have um, a gamma ray, we have X-ray, we, we cover the, the, the whole suite. And just to give you an example, we say we fly an imager on Bepi Colombo, but this is really not the truth. It's not an imager. It's not an imager. You know, we have one detector which is doing very high resolution imaging. We can go at 400 kilometer altitude to less than five meters. Mm -hmm. So we will have a very high resolution. Of course, we cannot image the whole planet. It would uh, would be too Take much too data. Long, yeah, and but then we oh, have. Are you limited also in the data you transport back in terms yes, of bandwidth of yeah, the communications yeah. network? That's another interesting story. Ah. Maybe to come back because mm -hmm. both satellites uh, have have this problem. So we, then we have um, our multispectral imager, 
where we're getting images back of a moderate resolution in multiple wavelengths, mm -hmm. basically in the optical to the near infrared. Um, so, and, and here we can, uh, observe the surface, the global surface. We will have global coverage after one year in all of this wavelengths to a resolution of three, four hundred meters, something mm -hmm. like this. So we will be able to make maps in this resolution after the, the first year in orbit. And then we have a dual, a stereo camera. Uh, which is, uh, right, right, which are measuring from two points in the orbit and we can immediately produce a digital elevation model. Uh, also, we expect to have then after one year of operations, a global digital elevation model and the resolution is then dependent on the worst we get. So let's say four, five, six hundred meters resolution, we will have a digital elevation model. In altitude resolution or in uh, the lateral? In the lateral, lateral resolution for the altitude, we are, we are much better. And uh, we have a laser altimeter, which can uh, give us basically the, the ground truth yeah. uh, to less than one meter. Uh, we can correlate this into all of the other data and we will have a, a, a really good uh, final, final solution. Why do you need uh, a laser altimeter and a stereo camera? I mean, if you have the altimeter, why do you need the camera, I guess? The, to have the, the duplicate. I think the, la the laser altimeter is measuring the altitude in a much higher accuracy. Yes. But the shots only hit the surface every three, four, oh. five, six hundred meters or even mm -hmm. more. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's three, four hundred meters at 400 kilometer altitude, but okay. we start to operate at 1000. Yeah. And then it might be two kilometer far from me. Away so the from camera each other. gives you the shape and the altimeter gives you gives the absolute the kind of, uh, kind of calibration. Exactly. Of okay. Exactly. And yeah. then I can imagine that the altitude profile is taken into account when you do the gravity because yeah. Yes. Of course, the density is only correct, the assumption, if you know how much stuff there is, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. There will be a very uh, complex procedure in order to put together all this yes. data. You have from one side the data from the orbit of the, the spacecraft and gives you the gravitational field. You have the altimetry that has to be related to the position of the spacecraft. So in order to get this ground truth, uh, you first have to reconstruct the position of the spacecraft. Yep. And then there is another uh, funny thing so that uh, at the end uh, you, you compile a sort of atlas of the surface of Mercury, like you do for the Earth. Mm -hmm. and, but in order to compile this atlas, you need meridians and parallels. On the Earth, it's very simple. You have, uh, for example, you know that we have our Greenwich Meridian that passes to Greenwich, but uh, on the <coughs> Mercury, you do not have London. How to, uh, <laughs> how to do? So who knows? I mean, if after yeah. Brexit, they leave the planet, they <laughs> might go to Mercury. I mean, how do you know? But okay. So it's, it's a matter of convention, but it has been selected a small, very well-defined crater called uh -huh. Hunkal, which is a Maya, I, I, I was told it's a Maya word that stands for 20, uh -huh. that marks the 20 degree heat of, of this meridian. Mm -hmm. So before having these maps, you have to create these networks of parallels and meridians, and in order to do that, you have to resort to the gravitational orbit of the spacecraft. So it's a series of uh, successive approximation that put together all this information. I mean, basically what you do is you build a model, right? A, 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 a model that uh, then hopefully explains, for example, also how the orbit is impacted, yeah. impacted 
by the by the by the photons hitting the spacecraft and then you're trying yeah. to come up with if you will a solution that that yeah. puts all the data together yeah, yeah. The, the name of this procedure technically is called precise orbit determination you you determine the orbit very precisely and you have to refer to some external reference frame yeah because it is a chicken and egg problem if you can't determine yeah. the orbit if you don't know the gravitational pull and vice versa i mean yeah. one of them has to be known so you need mm. several sources mm. and in fact uh, we will uh, use also in order to navigate the previous gravitational field that was built by the messenger, messenger. Right. but uh, we, we want to improve since uh, it has been uh, said that the orbit of the messenger was very peculiar was uh, very elliptical and so the gravitational field uh, and also this reference frame was uh, much tuned to the northern hemisphere mm -hmm. while the southern hemisphere it's uh, much less covered with Bepi Colombo we yep. will have a much an orbit that is closer to be circular, even if it is not perfectly circular, we hope to have a more, get a more homogeneous gravitational field, both north and south. Yeah. Are there, in terms of model building, are there interactions between the gravitational model and the magnetic model? Like, I don't know, if there is more magneti magnet magnetization in some part mm. of the core, then this must be denser, and that influences mm. the... You know, it, it, it gets us in general to a very interesting point. We, we, I think we already have, have touched it in, in, in two discussions from the magnetosphere. Uh, we went to the, uh, the crustal magnetic field to the, the, the lava where this was burnt in, which is the geology. And mm -hmm. then we have the uh, dipole models and everything. Uh, so I don't know the exact answer to your question, but in general in, in Bepi Colombo is... Um, The, the, the data analysis, the strength of Pepe Colombo will be in the combination of all right. the data, yeah, yeah. right? We will, we will have a lot of models. It's not only that we have, we, we have a model of the dipole and of the solar wind, the solar activity. We, mm -hmm. we have mo models about geology of, of uh, how the, the dipole could, put, could work. Um, yeah, uh, Joanna mentioned the sulfur, uh, iron sulfide uh, moving down. Yeah. Um, we will have models on the surface, on the libration, on the general relativity. Uh, we, we are full of models, and I think we, we have to work together, and this makes, makes Pepe Colombo extremely interesting. We have to work together not only on all of the instruments on a satellite, we have to work together as a mission. Mm -hmm. you know, and I give you an, an interesting example we're thinking right now about. So we have to cooperate very closely all over the mission between the Japanese and the, and the European PIs and the operation centers. And we mentioned before that none of the two spacecrafts will be able to downlink all the data. Right. I so, was talk going to right. mention this. And, yeah. and, and so the, the, the point is there, um, there will be decisions done both on the Japanese side mm -hmm. and on the European side, which data to downlink. Yeah. However, the data will be combined together later on to mm -hmm. do analysis. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, how do we ensure that if there is an event, for example, from the solar wind happening, um, that if the data is measured on the both spacecraft, that we get really the data from both spacecrafts down mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and not the Japanese decide to downlink the data and we in Europe said, oh, something else is more important. Mm -hmm. how, how do we coordinate this activity? So we're thinking right now and we have a lot of working groups and, and discussions about uh, sending quick look data first down to right. Earth, exchange it between the Japanese and European colleagues 
have a mechanism in place and say, yes, we saw something interesting, uh, communicate it back and then downlink to the two spacecraft, please get us the data down. And so, so, so the strength of Pepe Colombo is indeed the commonality to, mm -hmm. to have one one big two to have a two point measurements yeah. and and to combine all the data at the end. Oh, yeah. Now also the uh, I, I mentioned in the in the uh, wavelength range, so we're covering all the wavelength range. That's the same is true in the energy range. Mm -hmm. So we're covering all all the energy ranges with which uh, with complementary between the two satellites. Um, and everything has to be combined. We can only be strong if we really uh, have the data available from all of the instruments. Mm -hmm. So, but this, what I hear from what you say is that there's not going to be one integrated operation center for the two spacecraft. There will be two yes. locations and groups yes. and you're working on how they coordinate effectively. Yes, indeed. The um, I leave uh, Ayako explaining the Japanese part. In Europe, we have a science operation center. Of course, the Spacecraft Operations Center is here in Darmstadt right. at ISOC, yep. and the Science Operations Center is near to Madrid in what we call ISAC, the Astronomy Center. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. And there, all the uh, instrument operations will be harmonized together to have uh, a timeline that the spacecraft can fulfill. Yeah. And this timeline mm -hmm. will because be Because you have to budget energy and position exactly. and attitude, blah, blah, blah. The, the, everything has to fit right. together with all of the sources yeah, yeah. and conflicts yeah, yeah. We, we might have to make yeah. to harmonize, to make it conflict-free. Uh, then it will be sent to ESOC, who is uplinking it to the spacecraft. Mm -hmm. And maybe Ayako can tell how it works on the Japanese yeah. side. Yes, uh, the, we Japanese have the, our own uh, the, uh, the operation, uh, the, uh, operation uh, system, and we have the uh, very big dish in, mm -hmm. inside uh, Japan, and we are now uh, the, uh, building a new dish, uh, uh, and uh, we will complete it uh, when the baby uh, Colombo yeah. arrive at the market. Still some time left. Yes, <laughs> yes. And uh, as you said, that uh, we will try to uh, downlink all the, the quick look data, and uh, but uh, we record the high resolution data in the uh, the data data recorder on the spacecraft, and uh, if we find the, the some very interesting some the uh, the event in the some the quick look uh, the data, and uh, of course we must uh, the, uh, make the, some the discussion with the MPO people who, uh, yep. to uh, the judge the what which one is very interesting for us. But uh, the, when we find the, some the interesting event, we can uh, the, uh, get the, some the high resolution data uh, of that period. How long can you store data on the satellite? I mean, uh, how critical, time critical is the decision making, right? Yeah, I'm sorry that I do not have the, some the okay. exact number. Now, but uh, yeah, of course, uh, we must make some kind of the quick uh, yeah. judgment. <coughs> right. Okay. So the on on the planetary orbiter, um, we can store data for an extremely long time, and we have uh, what we call latency rate. So the the rate between having the data available, let's say between the acquisition of the signal and having them available on ground, can be months. Sometimes we have to wait for up to three months to get the data down. But, but that is because the bandwidth is so low. No, that is because the onboard storage is so big. <laughs> but in the end... <laughs> the, the, but the decision, the point is, however, that the onboard storage is full. And the decision to override something or not, we only have a few days. 
So we are talking when it's about full, yeah. when it's when it's full and it will be full. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, no, you, yeah. It's like with your photo camera, it's sure. always full. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> so the decision time is not very long. Mm -hmm. It will be between uh, two days and five days, something like this. And then we most likely have to make a, a decision. But again, first we get the quick look down yeah, sure. for, a for a lot of, not yeah, for yeah. all instruments, for a lot of instruments. Yeah. Um, then we have to make a decision, but then it might take weeks and months to really have the data on. But how much of the data that's recorded can, in the time you have available in total, be downloaded? Yeah, but but this this is um, this is a function of uh, time and a function of orbit. So depending mm -hmm. on where we are in the Mercury season, especially you know if Mercury is on the other side of the sun. We have phases where our downlink rate is going down to zero and will even be not, we have no communication up mm -hmm. to a few hours. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it will slowly start to rise again. And in this time period, we cannot really do downlink a lot of data. Mm -hmm. uh, there will be other times when, when uh, the MPO will be near to our antenna on the earth. And the sun is on the other side, and then we have a very high bandwidth, and we can downlink a lot of data in a short time. But but still, I could imagine you will not be able to get all the data. Yes, yeah, the data will be overwritten. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Data will be overwritten. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it will be a decision to overwrite the data. Which yeah. that will be a decision which data to overwrite. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, in some sense, it's good, right? Because um, the storage systems has become, or space qualified storage systems are cheap and lightweight yeah. enough so you can install lots of data, uh, so you can store yeah. lots of data and then make a conscious decision which to downlink. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the data storage we have on board of Pepe Colombo, I don't, uh, probably I can say for a European spacecraft is probably, let's say for a planetary spacecraft, is the largest mm -hmm. up to now. SSDs, right? This is not hard yeah, disks. Yeah, it's not hard disk. Yeah, okay. No, no. Okay. Space rated yeah. SSDs. Yeah. yeah, SSDs. And then I think Solar Orbiter might have a larger one than we have, but. Uh, okay. Right. Yeah, for the MMO science, uh, the, uh, the monitoring the uh, solar surface is very important. If the, there is some the very big activity and uh, some materials are ejected from mm -hmm. the sun, and uh, even when it does not hit the Earth, it may hit the Mercury. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, for the MMO science, that event is very, very in interesting. So that if we watch uh, uh, some of the, uh, the uh, so-called coronal mass ejection mm -hmm. or the, some of the material ejection from the, the, uh, the sun, and uh, we uh, find some of the possibility uh, that the, that hit the, uh, the mercury, we will uh, uh, the, uh, the give the very big priority mm -hmm. to the, 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 the data corresponding to that, the yeah. other events. Yeah. yeah, right. Okay. So um, I think we covered most of the disciplines, right? Um, What did we forget to talk about? May, may, I, may I add something which um, is also of importance for Bepi Colombo? And um, in general, it's difficult to observe Mercury. You know, the, Mercury is kind of the last planet we are observing, not only because it's difficult to go there, but it's really difficult to observe it. Why? And the difficulty to observe it, it's so near to the sun. So most of, most of the time, it's, you know, it's very near to the sun. And, and, uh, Why is that a problem? 
there are two two points if you have a, a professional astronomers never point their spacecraft oh, anywhere near, near to the sun right yes. they don't uh, destroy yeah. their ccd and their yeah, optics yeah. within yeah. within one minute so the, yeah. so yeah. professional astronomers that they don't do this right yeah so we need uh for this solar telescopes mm-hmm. um but then we need solar telescopes which are equipped with spectrographs which are typically not of important for solar scientists uh-huh. so we have only a few instrumentation on on the earth and and which are really willing and happy and have the right instrumentation to do this mm-hmm. and in the past what we have seen that on the solar observatories they're closing down on earth because you have all these wonderful observatories in space now mm-hmm. but we can't use them to observe mercury so right now for the same CCD for the, destroying reason yeah for the same reason yeah? yeah so right now we are we are going and we kicked off an initiative to really <coughs> combine worldwide all the resources <coughs> to observe mercury from ground mm-hmm. as good as we can uh, to have the long term evolution ah. of the exosphere mm-hmm. right we have we have mentioned sodium and so we can measure this from from earth we can measure sodium potassium magnesium and and, spectros- and spectroscopy spectroscopy yeah, yeah they yeah. do spectroscopy exactly yeah. yeah yeah and we know now we we already from from the last 10 years there are observers in in japan in the us in europe and in india now um they're doing the spectral resolution and they have a spatial resolution on the planet mm-hmm. and we see that for example the sodium is changing over the run of days in the mm-hmm. northern and southern hemisphere with patterns. So the most, okay. And we don't really understand uh, to what this might correlate. Mm-hmm. Maybe to solar activity. Other scientists ah. believe it might correlate to micrometeoroid impacts or maybe uh, to a photo dissociation effect on the surface coming from the heating up of the sun during the day and, and something is happening. You said correlate. But you mean cause, right? No, not no. So it's not so causing it. It's 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 a secondary effect. Ah, okay. And we first want to find out if there is a link. Okay. Right? Okay. We don't really know what the link is. So you don't have a theory. You don't. No. E- but you also e- don't even have, if you will, a statistic matching yes, that expresses yes, a correlation. Yes, we would. We are okay. looking for this for this statistic right. matching yeah. to to go further in the yes. analysis, right? right. Mm-hmm. But for this, we need much more data, yeah. and especially we need a long uh, a data sample before we arrive. Mm-hmm. When we arrive, we have so to say then the ground truth, mm-hmm. uh, but then we would like to have all the ten years or the seven years from now to then we would like to have uh, observations from the from yeah. the ground antennas. That's also an interesting aspect to see how difficult this is to get this together. And uh, yeah, I was going to ask you what you guys all do the next few years or your extended vacation mm-hmm. because <laughs> you have to wait until the <laughs> spacecraft arrives at its workplace. I. <laughs> but I the, <laughs> I could speak for the speak for the accelerometer. Indeed, the accelerometer will be one of the instruments that will be alive uh, during the cruise. Mm-hmm. And I would say, from my personal point of view, working in the team of accelerometer will be very exciting. So, uh, during the cruise, we will have a very very quiet condition, so we can test uh, for the first time. Uh, our instrument in a very quiet condition. Condition that on the ground, on the earth, you cannot have. Unfortunately, it's too late to fix it if it's not precise, right? Yeah, but we we will uh, want to try to calibrate it and especially to characterize the the, the instrument along this very long time. And then uh, there will be flybys, you know, that uh, 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 over this long cruise we will encounter 
the Earth one time, Venus two times, and Mercury four times mm -hmm. before reaching uh, the six times before reaching the the final orbit. And then during these uh, flybys, we plan to uh, get on our instrument and try to measure what we can. For example, in the case of accelerometer, we want to try an experimental gravitation uh, using the so-called gravity gradients. So ideally, our instrument would be in the center of mass of the, the spacecraft. Mm -hmm. In practice, it is not uh, mm -hmm. so for design yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. constraints. And so we expect to read in our instrument a signal due to the fact that we are not in the center of mass. Be Usually, it's because called... Because the spacecraft is rotating or... It is rotating. Yeah. And also we will sense a differing gravitational field between the center of mass and the position of our instrument. Very tiny. Mm -hmm. But the instrument can record. Usually, in the nominal phase around Mercury, this... It's a sort of noise yep. that has to be modeled, yeah, yeah. corrected. In that case, we will use it as a signal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we hope to, to add some signal. This is one of the examples of the and things. A, and a similar activity is happening between all the imaging instruments. So you can imagine once we are operating, we, we want to compare uh, our, our signals. So on ground now, we have uh, selected a number of samples. And these samples are moved from laboratory to laboratory, and all the individual instruments are calibrating ah. their flight spare against the individual samples, mm -hmm. so that we can later on really compare our different imaging data towards yep. each other. This is a, a, a very long-lasting activity, which will it will be active the whole of the seven years. I okay. think a lot of people will be very busy in the laboratories, do the calibration yeah. and, and everything. I have to add one thing that I did not mention before. During the cruise, uh, we will be performed another gravitational experiment that is called superior conjunction experiment. What does it mean with this strange I word? I could ask. Yeah. <laughs> A superior conjunction is, in, is when the sun is in between the Earth and the spacecraft. Mm -hmm. So there is a sort of alignment. Yep. So uh, you can ask, and in fact Einstein asked about, what does it happen to the photon, to the light, when it passes very close to the sun? Mm -hmm. It's when it's bent, right? Yeah, but not only. Uh, the, the bending of light was uh, one, perhaps, the, the confirmation that made Einstein yes. famous yep. after the, Ed, the Eddington experiment. But there is another effect that was discovered by Irving Shapiro, which is a, an American scientist, in the 60s, that is called the Shapiro time delay. When light passes very close to the sun, it tends to be delayed. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it has to, in a sense, you can see it as it has to... Uh, a longer uh, path. Right, because it because space-time is yeah. curved and so it yeah. has to go along the curve. Yeah. So it and looks as if it slows down. And if you measure the yeah. time of uh, the light, uh, our electromagnetic waves <coughs> that we use uh, to communicate with the spacecraft, you measure the time this uh, pulse goes from the Earth to the spacecraft and back, mm -hmm. you will uh, be able to measure. This type of experiment has been done previously with the Cassini spacecraft, mm -hmm. And then will be repeated with uh, improved instrumentation with respect to Cassini. So this will be a very dedicated experiment, only possible when the spacecraft is uh, in its cruise phase. Mm -hmm. And maybe to add there, one of the noise they have in the data is the so the, so the signal is disturbed by the electron contact in the solar corona. 
which they throw away, and I hope they send this to me because I'm very interested in the electron content in the solar corona and can link this to other instrumentation we have, actually. Mm -hmm. It's really funny, right? Because in some sense, uh, you or the community spends all this money to, to get the hardware there. And I'm sure that everybody's frantically looking for other experiments that can be done with as little as possible additional equipment. But, you know, it's kind of a side effect, a side to, effect yeah. to get more science out yeah, of the same money effectively. Yeah. Uh, you know that uh, space missions are very costly. Yes. So uh, we c ideally one would have uh, designed one experiment to test gravitation, another satellite to test. Yeah, yeah, sure. This, this is impossible. Sure. So we, we go piggyback as we see. So uh, pack everything is possible onto a probe and yeah. send where we... Yeah. Final question, I guess. Um, so there is now a certain set of uh, sensors, experiments on the various spacecraft. Um, and as a consequence, you, you can make certain measurements with certain scientific objectives. I'm sure there was some kind of design or selection process before the mission was kind of committed. How many alternative suggestions were there i mean how much else could you do and you're mm -hmm. now not doing because you don't take the equipment see what i'm saying mm -hmm. i mean how big was the space from which you could kind of pick what you are now sciencing about let's say what i remember and maybe the biggest impact what we are really missing on our mission which is really hitting us uh, originally we had foreseen a lander a landing mm -hmm. element. So okay, we had yeah. we had foreseen the magnetospheric, the planetary, and then the, then the lander to get really down and and to have seismometers and and make in situ measurements. Mm -hmm. And I think this is really really the open gap which is leaving, which will make the data analysis. Maybe I should say, I don't know, maybe not complete at the end because we're really missing this point. We really need ground truth. But on the other hand, if you would have taken one, it would have taken a lot of weight <coughs> and you might have not been able to take a couple of the sensors, right? Let's say the, the, the weight of the lander itself was not so large. As if I remember right, it was in the frame of 100 kilograms, okay. something like this. So you could say, uh, but of course, to, to develop a lander and bring yeah. a lander successfully down, sure. it's extremely expensive yeah. and, and, and cumbersome. So at one point in the mission, uh, we had a few uh, time and money overruns in the last year. As so, usual. Uh, so this was kind of uh, fall off the table, so to say. So it was planned at a point. It was planned at a okay. point, yeah. Uh, it was okay. in, the, in the overall program at a point, and mm -hmm. then at one point it was uh, taken out. Do you remember... Uh, how it would have landed like a rocket's parachute bouncing no okay. I, don't, i don't know because I, i do know that this yeah. is highly dependent on the atmosphere and the and the size of the gravitational field and all these other parameters yeah. which of those is the like best or crane or whatever yeah, I, it is. I don't, I don't okay know. all right okay anything else anybody wants to add you'll all be here yeah. tonight right yes, yes. yes so you've all already <laughs> slept No, we have still have to. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the plan is coffee. Yeah. <laughs> plan and is I coffee think we will rest in the before. afternoon. <laughs> we will rest in the afternoon. <laughs> That's my plan too. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. Good. Thank you. So thank you. Yeah, to thank you. you. To all station, this is OD on the briefing loop for the go no go check and the roll call for the Bepi Colombo launch. Please may give me your, your go no go status upon my request. OM. OM go. Some. Some go. Data handling. 
data handling go. AOCS. AOCS go. Platform. Platform go. Analyst. Analyst go. Spacon. Spacon go. Flight Dynamics. Flight Dynamics go. Project Rep. Project Rep go. Project Support. Project Support go. Softcore. Softcore go. Software Support. Software Support go. Estrac. Estrac go. Scheduling. Scheduling go. Thank you. This completes the roll call for the Baby Colombo launch. So this was the roll call um, just before the launch. Um, it basically covers all the different positions in the ESOC control room. And then if all of those uh, positions are ready for launch, green as they say, then this is communicated to Kuru because the Ariane rocket obviously cannot launch if the payload, the Baby Colombo satellite, is not ready. So that's, of course, a big milestone. And so this was also one of the first things that came, actually it was the first thing that came through the communication loop. It came right after the opening of the press briefing. And, um, well, right after that, there was a little time for Q&A. And uh, I got to talk a bit with um, Paolo Ferri. He is the head of mission operations at ESOC. And also, by the way, the guest speaker at Omega Tau 10. And he gave a great, great, great presentation. Everybody really loved it. So that was really cool. But here is the short interview with him during the Baby Colombo launch. All right. Now I'm here with Paolo Ferri, who is in charge today, right? Actually, the, the real flight director sits in the control room. Uh, I'm uh, responsible for all the operations, so uh, in, uh, I'm in charge, but my main role is to, to get worried tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so um, right now everything is green, right? Kuru is green, we are yeah. green here. Yes, everything looks uh, very good. Uh, we, we followed over the last few hours the, the setup of the spacecraft in Kuru, so we couldn't mm -hmm. see all the telemetry. And everything was fine. There were a few hiccups, but it's okay. On the ground, we tested everything, and everything is fine. Uh, it looks like that the weather is still uh, green, mm -hmm. which is important. This can play a trick until the last minute. Yeah. So, f but for the moment, it looks very good. Mm -hmm. So, even while the spacecraft is still on the ground on the rocket, there is telemetry from not just from the rocket, but from the spacecraft yes, here. That's correct. Uh, the the telemetry flow, so we can see everything as if it was flying, mm -hmm. uh, but the telemetry flow will be interrupted in the moment where the umbilical separates, because there is no radio transmission from the spacecraft. So the data from the spacecraft come via an umbilical cable from ah. the rocket to the tower and then to us. So during the ascent, during the ascent we will be blind. And okay. this is, of course, what we don't like, but it's yeah. normal. Yeah? Yeah. So the, the full ascent, we will not see anything. When it separates from the spacecraft, from the launcher, the spacecraft automatically activates the transmitter, and then we should see the telemetry. This is the most important moment. For That's us. the big milestone, acquisition of signal. Exactly. Right, exactly. okay. So uh, this time, it will be in two steps. So we will see just the radio signal, so like the RF carrier, the radio carrier. frequency mm -hmm. carrier, uh, over a small uh, antenna we have in, uh, in Africa, in Kenya, mm -hmm. Malindi. And a couple of minutes later, we should see the telemetry in Australia. And uh, that's where we start mm -hmm. the work for us. So uh, what I 
I have no idea whether this spacecraft is, for whatever reason, more challenging, less challenging. Is there stuff on it that's especially sensitive during the launch? Or is this, quote, just another launch and it has the usual, let's say, potential failure modes? Yes. I think from what concerns the launch and the initial phase, what we call the LEOP, the launch and early orbit phases, mm -hmm. which is basically uh, three days after launch, mm -hmm. Uh, is not different from uh, many other interplanetary missions. Okay. Uh, of course, if you go Earth observation, is different because you fly very close to the Earth. Here you go on an escape trajectory. And directly, right? Directly. There's no exactly. upper stage. No, that, there's yeah. no upper stage. So we go in an escape trajectory. But the launch operations and the LEOP operations are traditional, if you want. The, what makes the, the spacecraft very special and this mission very special, especially for the mission operations that we are in charge of, is the cruise, which mm -hmm. will be long, but also active. very active. Yes, very exactly. Active. Yeah. Exactly. So because we have this ion thruster, we have nine flybys. So in seven years, we have a lot of things to do. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the operations at Mercury. That yeah. will be completely different from what we've done up to now. In which, uh, yeah, scientifically, of course, but yeah. also operationally, because uh, uh, we fly there in an environment. The spacecraft is built such that it it has basically all sides are protected from the very strong radiation and heat from twenty seven layers. We just heard about it exactly, <laughs> and uh, you know it's not only the sun but also Mercury. Right. Mercury is super hot, yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, um, so we have two sources that we have to protect the spacecraft from, uh, but there is one. One side of the spacecraft, the big radiator, yeah. which is dominating the spacecraft, this side must always be pointed away from Mercury and yeah. away from the Sun in yeah. the cold space. Yeah. Uh, just a few degrees of uh, mispointing, and then we are in real trouble. We can really damage the radiator, mm -hmm. we can damage the instrument, damage everything. Mm -hmm. um, uh, this is what characterizes our mission operations uh, in so a no basically attitude management is attitude challenging. management exactly yeah. i think it's the right word attitude management because it's not just attitude control we have right. to continuously right. telling the spacecraft in which direction to point mm -hmm. uh, in the nominal case and also in a in a emergency mm -hmm. case a normal spacecraft when uh, uh, the computer goes you know strange or, or it crashes yeah. or yeah. or yeah. there is a real failure yeah. normal spacecraft just says, okay, I switch Don't everything move. off. No, actually, it does It does a movement, but it does a predetermined movement. Oh, I set. see. I point the sun with right. my arrays, right. I point the earth with the antenna. So I, I get wait. energy and I can talk. Exactly. Yeah. And then I wait for the earth. Right. Here, we have to continuously tell the space cover, in case your prime computer goes off, yes. in case your prime, then you have to follow a different profile. So okay. we, we, we do a parallel attitude management for the nominal and the redundant, and, mm -hmm. the, and, the, and the emergency case. Yeah. It's very delicate. You make okay. one mistake and you kill the mission. This is this is for me the, the main characteristic. So that's also challenging from a software and control perspective. It's extremely cool. challenging. Mm -hmm. We are not allowed to make mistakes. And uh, okay, I think the guys here are very good. Yeah. But you know, uh, yeah. you have to do triple check everything. Right. Yeah. right. Last question. Um, to what degree? I mean, I don't, how how many launches per year do you do? 
roughly? Uh, in this period, we are doing, uh, well, almost every year we've done four launches per year. Okay. Uh, this year, this is the fourth, the third, mm-hmm. but we have one planned in 18 days. By the mm-hmm. way, this would be a record. We never did two launches mm-hmm. so close. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but four launches is the maximum we've ever done. And is that a limit of the organization here? Or is that a limit more or less of the amount of satellites people yes. have? Okay. Yes, it's more, it's more, the limit comes from that. Yeah. Having said that, uh, I must say that doing many more launches than four per year would be difficult because uh, every launch we occupy some facilities for mm-hmm. say four months you train yeah. all of this exactly so uh, there are some common facilities that you know every mission has its own specific computer system right. and, uh, and control room this is not a problem but the common facilities we need for launch uh, we need them for a specific launch, and yep. it's always the same facility. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, have yeah, some yeah. redundancy, yeah. so uh, let's say we never tried that, but I think that when we go above, say, five, six, seven launches mm-hmm. per year, this will be tough. Mm-hmm. At the moment, we're not at the limit. For us, what is uh, crucial is how close the launches come. Yeah, And yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. we've never done uh, two launches in, actually, our record is two launches in three weeks. Mm-hmm. We've never done it in less than three weeks, we think we can go to one week separation. Okay. That's the minimum. Wow. Uh-huh. Beyond that, uh, we don't want to go because okay. uh, for every launch, we really want to be dedicated. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Let's keep our fingers crossed for yes. at least two reasons. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Yep. And these two reasons, well, one of them is obvious, right? You want the mission to be successful. But the other reason was a little bit selfish because if uh, the launch was delayed or if uh, serious problems would develop, then of course uh, Paolo couldn't have done his talk at OT10. Of course, there was a plan B. A colleague would have jumped in, but of course we would have liked for him to come. And well, we, he did come, so everything was fine. So, um, as you probably all know, um, Ariane uh, launched successfully. And Baby Colombo started its mission successfully. Nonetheless, the phase of, uh, like, after the launch, when everybody was waiting for the acquisition of Signal, was actually quite tense. Well, everybody here is very tense, uh, waiting for the signal to arrive. As you know, we lost uh, the telemetry at the moment of uh, liftoff, uh, so we're not in contact with the spacecraft. And uh, our job will start when the after the separation of the spacecraft from the lo- rocket. So after we have acquired the first signal in a few minutes from now, uh, we will have uh, the team working here for about two to three days, uh, getting the spacecraft uh, ready for its long cruise to Mercury. There will be some activities like deploying antennae for the communications when the distance increases from Earth, and uh, of course checking that all the systems are ready. Then there will be a more, uh, let's say, a longer phase of a few months where we uh, we test uh, the the onboard systems, the payload instruments, and uh, very very important. Will be the and here Paolo was somewhat rudely interrupted by the moderator of the press event, like mid-sentence, and uh, uh, I don't know, there was some other thing happening, I forget what it was. And after a little while, it was then time for acquisition of signal. To all positions on the briefing loop, we had a brief signal from Bepi Colombo over the Balindi station, as expected at this time. 
So the screen in the press briefing room showed a diagram, basically a spectrogram, um, you know, energy over frequency, where the acquisition of signal would be indicated by a little peak growing in the middle out of a otherwise rather flat spectrum. And uh, we were waiting and waiting and waiting for a few minutes. And uh, the camera was switching over to the flight director and Paolo Ferri standing next to each other, also waiting for the signal. And I don't know if I was projecting my own impatience into those two guys or whether they were actually also kind of getting slightly nervous because it was taking maybe a little bit longer. Um, so they were like looking around and, you know, I, I imagined I saw question marks over their heads on the screen. But then... To all stations, this is OD on the briefing loop. We have successful AOS in Yonorsha. So we see telemetry flowing. I don't know if you are hearing me from uh, uh, Kuru, but uh, we can confirm we had a good uh, AOS at New Norcia and uh, the team is now checking all the parameters everything looks uh, good on the spacecraft side right well we have the AOS it means ladies and gentlemen that we have a mission now uh, that Whoa. has been said later. Andreas, you must be feeling very happy. Yes, I'm extremely happy, extremely relieved. <laughs> Everything was green for launch. We went. It's a beautiful, beautiful night launching crew. But, of course, it's not the end. It's the beginning for us. Because we've just seen the separation of the spacecraft from the rocket. That's where on board an automatic sequence is triggered that has been switching on the transmitters. That's what we saw, the first signal received. Thereafter, it's going to be priming the chemical propulsion system of the spacecraft to have the thrusters available, despin the spacecraft, and then we have to do something very critical, which is to deploy the solar rays. And you can see over here, Pepe Colombo is very special. It does not only have two solar array wings, as we normally do on many spacecraft, but it has three of them. So uh, in the coming minutes, Andrea Comazzo and uh, the, uh, my fellow flight director and Elsa Montagnon, the spacecraft operations manager and her teams, will be monitoring very, very carefully the deployment of uh, the solar array, ready to jump in if something goes wrong. Hopefully not. But um, this will be the next step. Thereafter, of course, we'll be acquiring the sun with these uh, enormous wings. They have a, a span width of around 30 meters uh, to recharge the batteries, because so far we're only running on batteries. And thereafter, okay, we have two and a half days of very intense activities where we run 24-hour shifts, so 12 hours each, two teams. I'll be coming on uh, tomorrow morning, hopefully by that time. The spacecraft is stable, and the next steps to do then is to deploy some antennas. There's a medium-gain antenna over here and a high-gain antenna that will have to be de deployed over the coming days, and watch out for it. You're also going to get some selfies from uh, Pepe Colombo, hopefully tomorrow. 
and uh, yes, and after that, effectively, we will go to normal sort of normal commissioning operations. We'll be testing uh, some of the instruments and so-called near-earth commissioning over the two months. And that's going to be another exciting moment, which will be switching on the electric propulsion in around about two months from now, in order to get us on our cruise to Mercury. And thereafter, you've heard the epic voyage, you know, seven years until we get there. Now, Andreas, if I can just uh, uh, confirm with you, these images that we'll see uh, throughout the weekend, which you'll see in social media, you'll see in the ESA website, they're not actually scientific images coming from a scientific instrument. They're more to allow you, the flight control team, to see what's happening on, on board the spacecraft. Indeed, uh, I think there have been some images already released beforehand, you know, which were taken on ground, but effectively we'll be taking these very same images on board as a small camera. Uh, that we'll be taking these images and we'll hopefully see the, uh, the arrays as well as the antennas deployed at that point in time. So, watch out for it. Andreas, could you give us a, a, a quick feeling? How does it feel right now for the team in the main control room? Well, as was said before, I mean, it's, it's a feeling of intense concentration. It's something we've been training for for the last five months. But that's not the start. You know, the people who are sitting on console now have been working for many, many years getting the ground segments ready, testing with the spacecraft on the ground, getting all the systems ready, flight dynamics, getting ready for doing uh, the maneuvers that have to be done together with the colleagues from Mission Analysis who have prepared very carefully the trajectory to get us to Mercury. And uh, so it's really the result of many, many years of hard labor. Great. Thank you very much, Andreas, and best wishes for, uh, for a smooth flight. Thank you. Thank you. I caught Andreas on his way out and asked him a few more questions. I do have to do one thing now, which is to go to sleep, because I have to be back in due course in <laughs> around about uh, 10 hours from now in order okay. to resume next uh, the operations of the next shift. Okay, yes. few minutes. <laughs> so how is the collaboration between what's going on here and what's going on in Kourou? How are you from here involved in the launch itself? Probably not, right? We are basically having to make an input for uh, before the rocket is allowed to lift off. So basically, before the rocket will lift off, you have to check three things. One is the rocket, obviously. Yes. It needs to be in the right state to go. You have to check the spacecraft, which is sitting on top of it, because it needs to be in good health before yeah. it's, being, it's lifting off. And the third thing is the ground segment. So the, the ground stations, ESOC here, which are needed in order to get the satellite to work, to receive the first signal to make sure it's working, mm -hmm. uh, also need to be okay. And those are the three items that are being checked. And we have to make an input, basically, to our colleagues in Kourou, mm -hmm. uh, which they relay to the people who are working on, on the rocket, on Ariane Space and Knes, yeah. to enable, enable and give the green light for launch. So basically, during the, during the roll call, you're one of the roles that's called exactly and it gives we're green calling light. basically having yeah. to give the green light yeah. and that green light then is passed on to our colleagues in Karoo. okay and then basically you're passive during the launch itself because you have no Dur time during to anyway. the launch itself basically we are in voice contact with the people in mm -hmm. Karoo who are monitoring the ascent of the rocket but we do not get a signal from the spacecraft because the transmitter on yeah. board the spacecraft is only activated upon separation from the launcher it's like a newborn you know the <laughs> spacecraft is a newborn baby right effectively you yeah. know it's life starting yeah, yeah, yeah. in orbit 
and yeah. we and we we hear the first cry, so to speak, uh, or the first uh, the first voice uh, signal from it through our ground station antennas. And what we've seen on this spectrum analyzer here, yes. where a little peak was growing at a probably particular wavelength, yes. that is basically the carrier. That's not the data. That's the carrier, but there's also data. Basically, what you have seen is that there is a thing in the middle, which is the carrier, and then left and right there were smaller bumps. Mm -hmm. Those smaller bumps effectively are the uh, the subcarriers where the information is encoded. Ah, yeah. Okay. So, All yeah. right. Yeah. When we saw the video of the uh, main control room, there were several chairs that were empty, so there were rather few people. I thought. Well, I mean, some people are uh, were standing, obviously, so they didn't sit in okay. the chairs. But <laughs> no, no, no. Normally, it's uh, almost any. All of the positions are taken. I think okay. probably assuming you're the flight director, he's the only one who has the luxury of a second seat mm -hmm. in case uh, in case he has to move to a backup uh, computer system on mm -hmm. ground. He has the luxury of having a second seat. But no, mm -hmm. no, no. I mean, otherwise, the room is 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 it's full. Is full. Yeah. I also saw cake, so you do celebrate a little bit the fact well, that... Well, I mean, I mean, of course, people, people <laughs> you know, we, we, live, we live from the intense concentration that yeah. we are having at that point in time, but of course you have to think of your body as well. So I, I, some I thought, food is needed. I thought it was really funny because when, when the signal was acquired, the flight director and uh, Paolo Ferri, yeah. they were standing next to each other and... They were like looking at each other and like, okay, now we're supposed to have some emotional reaction and they patted each other on the shoulder. So this wasn't, NASA does this more emotionally, right? When everybody's standing out, cheering, well, it didn't are, happen here. We are, we are a bit more modest, we Europeans, you know, <laughs> but anyway, I mean, this, uh, I think, I think you could see the emotions. Yeah, I mean, this is part of the, uh, yeah. it's part of the, uh, of course, the, you know, being operations, of course, we do realize that, uh, It's not over yet, you know. We still have to see the yeah. solar rays coming out. Yeah, right. Uh, we still have to see that uh, the attitude of the spacecraft is acquired and that everything on board is nominal mm -hmm. before we can really confidently declare we have yeah. a mission. I mean, okay. So, so, so the one more question. So the the, um, the I know that one challenge with all these delicate electronics and sensors is that it's you know during launch it's loud and it shakes and stuff is that still a problem today or are we so mature with onboard electronics that usually things I mean, should n normally the testing philosophy and that is also why the development is taking that long right. and the validation is such that you make sure that during the ascent nothing is happening yeah now there are limits to that The limits are you can never test the whole spacecraft fully integrated as it is now. Yeah, yeah, so you yeah, do yeah. get some surprises sometimes. Mm. So it's worthwhile being prepared for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Vielen Dank. So this was basically the end of the press briefing then for me. Um, there was a breakfast at the ESA canteen um, and I went there. It was very busy actually and I basically decided not to grab anything. But then I ran into Fabian Lüdecke. Okay, you're from DLR? Yes, right. So it's again two German speaking English, which happens uh, often <laughs> on my podcast and then people complain. All right. Okay. <laughs> so you worked on the laser altimeter. Yes, right. I'm, I belong to the instrument team for uh, Bela, the Bepi Colombo laser altimeter. And um, yeah, uh, very happy about the fact that uh, the Ariane rocket did a very good job. As usual. Yes, <laughs> as usual. <laughs> right. And so um, laser altimeter altimeters are um, not fundamentally new, right? That's an idea that's been around for a while. 
Yeah, that's right. But um, uh, for this mission, uh, we do have the first European laser altimeter for an interplanetary mission. So it is a uh, well-known concept, but uh, for an interplanetary European mission, this is uh, the very first one. And from a, from a this instrument design perspective, what makes it special? What is the challenge? Um, yeah, of first of all, the uh, very challenging thermal environment of Mercury, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have very high temperatures, very high radiation, and um, this was a very big challenge uh, during the whole project. So does this affect the actual measurement as in disturb the laser, or is it about insulating the electronics to not be destroyed by the heat? Uh, well, actually, uh, one part is about um, thermal protection, for example, and, and the uh, very strong sunlight. We have very big baffles in front of, of the laser mm -hmm. and the sensor. And then, of course, uh, uh, one challenging thing was the decoupling of the um, outer mechanical parts, uh, so set the baffles with the rest of the instrument. So that it doesn't thermally conduct. Yeah, right. The alignment of both instruments, uh, basically, we have two instruments, one laser and one detector. Mm -hmm. And the alignment between those is very important. So that the detector actually detects a reflected laser. Yeah, right. They, uh, or or uh, to say it simple, they have to look into the same direction. Right, okay. Yeah. And again, why is that? where's the particular challenge? I mean, that's probably normal for all kinds of laser altimeters, right? Uh, no, not, uh, they don't have to deal with such a harsh environment. Okay, so it's yeah. again the, the insulation problem. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is very harsh. And then, of course, we have seven years of flight. And after seven years, uh, everything has to work fine. This is also a big challenge for the instrument to have a... It, have, it has to last seven years in space. In space, so, uh, yeah. Until we get to, to Mercury, and then we have uh, at least one mission, nominal mission, and then mm -hmm. uh, um, hopefully one year extended mission. Can you test? I talked to the, to the yeah. people who do these uh, gravity measurements. They say they can test their sensors in the quiet phases of the cruise. You have nothing to reflect from, right? So can you test? Um, no, but um, this is not a problem of reflecting. I mean, we have uh, several flybys. Uh, there you could Earth do it, yeah. and Venus and uh, Mercury, but uh, we are packed in. Actually, we have ah. three parts, and, and yeah. we are in the middle of them. Okay. So we are looking at the transfer module. Mm -hmm. So uh, we are totally covered. So like, you have to wait until you're there. Yeah, yeah, and that, that, that's quite a hard job. We have to wait seven years until we, we can do our first measurements. So I joked about this in the other interview. You actually have seven years of extended vacation because you have <laughs> nothing to do, right? <laughs> you prepare the next instrument. Yeah, okay. I mean, we will switch on the instrument. For example, uh, this November, we have the near-Earth commi near commissioning phase, and yeah. then we switch on the instrument. Self-testing. Yeah, we do what we can do. Right. Yeah. All right. Thank you. So, yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right. So this concludes this episode. At that time, it was about uh, 5.15 or something. And I went back to my hotel to try to gra grab some sleep. I actually did manage. So I slept from about 5.30 until I think around 8.30, three hours I had three hours before the press briefing. I went to bed at 8. I slept, I don't know, 9, 10, and then I got up at uh, 1.30. The press briefing started at 3. Of course, it was important for me to, to actually do find some sleep because uh, the night after this one would be short as well because of Omega Tau 10. And uh, it all worked out. But uh, <laughs> when I... Uh, returned, by the way, from Omega Tau 10, like on the during the night from Sunday to Monday, I slept for 11 hours. <laughs> uh, 
I want to thank all the guests in this episode, Pablo Munoz, Joe Zender, Roberto Perón, Ayako Matsuoka, Joana Oliveira, Andreas Rudolf, Fabian Lüdicke, and of course, Paolo Ferri. All right, so that's all I have for you today, as uh, Steve Jobs would say. And I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know what you think and uh, talk to you again in, I don't know, around 10 days. I have to process my cue so you might expect a new episode a bit earlier than the usual two-week frequency. All right. Ciao. Hello, Markus here for Omega Tau. Omega Tau is an independent and non-commercial podcast produced by Nora Ludwig and me, Markus Fötter. We are on the web at omegataupodcast.net. You can also find us on Facebook, Google+, and Twitter under the handle Omega Tau Podcast. We love to hear from you through a comment on the website, a post via our social network channels, or via an email at feedback at omegataupodcast.net. We also always appreciate recommendations of Omega Tau to your friends directly or through social media. Omega Tau is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivative License 3.0. This means that you can freely share the content, but you cannot use it for commercial purposes and you cannot distribute derivative works. You always have to attribute the source, omegataupodcast.net. Any quotations or citations of our work are perfectly fine, of course. For more details on the license, see creativecommons.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast and talk to you next time.